Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios. 
all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of August, St. Evans is supporting the Women's Prison Association, empowering women to redefine their lives in the face of injustice and incarceration. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country.
Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has always and still does loved a good department store restaurant. Seriously, even if the food isn't that great, doesn't it make you feel kind of like a fancy lady who lunches? (laughs) Not that I've been in one for a long time, but still, it's a good feeling to eat in one. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 94. And it's a little treat for all of you who enjoy some good nostalgia, but like some good educational nostalgia. (laughs) Throughout most of the pandemic, when most of us were home and isolated, worried and lonely, I worked hard to release two episodes per week. Do you remember those times? They weren't that long ago, actually. (laughs) I did this mostly because I was also at home and I was worried and lonely and isolated and working on the podcast helped me cope with my own mental health issues. I know for some of you, it was too much content. You probably got a little burned out. And when summer arrived, that hot vac summer that we were all so excited about, I pulled back to an average of like one episode per week because I too had big plans for hot vac summer and even hotter vax fall. Well, Now it turns out that super fun, hot vax summer was, well, more of a hot vax month, a few weeks. And I, like a lot of you, remain at home and lonely, pretty depressed, as I wait for things to get better so I can safely resume my life too. I'm depressed. I'm disappointed. I have found myself crying a lot more over the past few weeks as I confront the knowledge that all of the big plans I had for the fall to finally see family and friends, to get out into the world, to travel, which is for me one of life's greatest pleasures, all of that is back on hold. And I'm also being, just like you, bombarded with more and more bad, tragic, scary news every day. It's a lot. And so I've been really trying to take time each day to find some comfort somewhere. And I have found myself more and more comforting myself with nostalgic pop culture content from reading young adult books that I loved as a kid to watching movies and shows that remind me of a happier time in life. I thought some of you might be in the mood for the same kind of thing. So Jenny of Late to the Party, aka the estate sale queen, dropped by so we could record a long meandering conversation 
about the history of department stores, including our own memories, some detours into Mannequin, the film, Mad Men, and Bad Bathrooms, and so much more. So please, listen, enjoy, and tell me all of your department store memories via the Clothes Horse Hotline or by recording a message on your phone or computer and emailing it to me. You'll find all that contact info in the show notes. All right, let's jump right in. Jenny, I know everyone knows you by now, but we have been getting some new listeners who maybe won't start from the beginning. So do you want to just reintroduce yourself to everyone? Sure. Um, I'm Jenny. I am the founder of Late to the Party, uh, a slow fashion brand. I do a lot of um, clothing and accessories made from uh, vintage thrifted, salvaged materials. Um, also a regular on the pod. Um, I've come on and talked about everything from like state sales and thrifting to weird pop culture nostalgia <laughs> moments. It's like some of my favorite stuff to chat about. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm excited to be here today and chat about the rise and fall of the department store, which sounds very <laughs> exciting. I'm really excited about this one. I don't know what it is, but I was like, when you were talking about like, what what episode will we like to do together? I just, I was like, department stores felt like the right fit. Because I was like, I know Jenny's got some department store stories. I do. And we both grew up in the same time mm-hmm. with the same kind of families. We like, department stores were a part of our lives, which, I mean, I would love to hear from like Gen Z people. Like, do you even know what a department store is? Do you care? Have you ever been to one? Totally. I was thinking about that, how like, kind of weird it is because when we we talked about it I was like oh that'll be fun to like you know I was thinking a lot about malls too but like you know just department stores in general I was like well what am I going to talk about and then I started thinking and there's actually like a lot of weird sort of like early inspo and moments in my life that are like surrounded or somehow influenced by department stores which is actually really weird to think about now because I've like probably haven't been in a department store in like a oh, minute, yeah. you know, like, I can't remember the last time I like was like, hey, let me head to the department store and like do some shopping, you know. So it's just funny to think how much my life has changed from that. But I know. I mean, doesn't the department store seem like like a vintage idea, you know, like totally. old tiny. Um, but there was a time when department stores were like the most innovative thing out there. I mean, yeah, I went down an, an exciting rabbit hole of research. So I'm really excited to wow you with what I learned about department stores. I can't wait. (laughs) So department stores arrived on the scene in the 19th century in major cities and like major, major innovation in how people shopped. All around the same time, department stores were popping up in London with Whiteley's, in Paris, that's La Bonne Marche, and in Mm. New York with Stewart's, literally a store I've never heard of. Have you ever heard of Stewart's? No. I thought you were going to say like Bon Teller or something. Yeah, me too. See, I was shocked by this. Um, There's a lot of arguing out there among historians about which department store was first, but it seemed like everyone kind of got the idea at the same time. And that's because it was the Industrial Revolution. More and more people were moving away from the country, from that rural farm life, and into the city, and their shopping habits changed or really kind of like began. Because before that, you would just shop for things you needed. Like it was really about essentials, and often it was more like raw materials to make the essentials that you needed, right? Not a full dress, but some fabric to make a dress, that kind of thing. This was also the beginning of the rise of gift-giving culture, 
Mm. Like I've back last year, I I don't know if I did an episode about this or I just talked about it on Instagram, but I talked about the rise of like the Christmas shopping season, the holiday shopping season. Um, And this is when this started to develop. Like believe it or not, before the Industrial Revolution, people might give each other some like trinkets or some candy for Christmas or something like only your like family, you know, like your close relatives. This turned into like, no, I got to get a gift for everyone and it's got to be a pre-made gift and it's got to be a special gift and there's got to be lots of gifts, you know. So this is like where this starts Mm -hmm. to pick up momentum. And the department store is a really big part of it because the department store changed the way we shop forever. And it's it's really hard to put on your hat, your like time traveling hat and be like, oh, this is a time when department stores are so innovative because you and I would look at them now and we'll talk about this later. But I feel like department stores are just such a relic and yes. like not cool. Right. You know, whenever they try to do something cool, it's like a year too late. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, just yeah. always well, it's interesting that you're time. saying that like, you know, um, they started sort of being the like gift giving and that kind of thing and kind of this general place where you could buy like gifts for everybody and all the things you, you know, all the things you need or don't need or whatever. Cause I feel like we've gone back to like niche sort of shopping where it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, I need a bra. I'm going to the bra place or I'm going to now I feel like totally. we've kind of gone back to that because of like online and you can just directly find like, I need to find sneakers. I'm going to go to the sneaker place versus department stores were like this general sort of like almost social kind of place you could go and sort of look and find what you needed because you didn't have that that's where you found the fashion right found the things which is so weird like in the early like decades of the department store you could literally buy everything there um from mousetraps to clothes to gloves to fabric to food um i mean just like everything was there right and some department stores like still still operate that way where you could buy just about anything. Like there's a chain of department stores out here in central Pennsylvania called Boscov's. And I believe they were started by someone outside of Philadelphia who had the last name Boscov. And uh, they always feel really old timey to me because like you can get clothes there and makeup and shoes, like all the things we think of as a department store, but they also have a candy counter, Mm. you know, and like tools and home goods and like just everything. Right. Uh, um, what you almost might think of more like a Target or a Walmart having now. And it's important to call out that places like Target and Walmart aren't really considered department stores. What would you put, what category would you put them in then? They're considered, it, it's weird to me, but a lot of like retail analysts put them more in the category of like discount shopping, which I, okay. I don't, I don't know. It, I don't it's a bit think, of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch, but a lot of the like categories in retail are really antiquated. And we'll talk about some of those as we go through this too. Cause like cool. in my experience as a buyer, a lot of the industry still hasn't even adapted to the way people shop now. And so you still deal with some of this like antiquated thinking when you go to meet brands and stuff like that. So right. previously before the industrial revolution, just to reiterate, the average person made a lot of their own stuff, like clothing, buying the fabrics and other items from local mom and pop shops. You know, you're going to get a pair of shoes and you're going to wear them for years, right? And you have one pair of shoes. Like this is this is the time. No one's shopping just for funsies. Right. <laughs> which is a hard idea to even wrap my head around as a kid who grew up going to the mall just for fun, you know? Right. Totally. Um, and you certainly, as as the average consumer, didn't expect to go into a store that sold clothes and perfumes and gloves and home goods. You would go to, like, a general store and they would have fabric and flour and soap. But, like, it wasn't, like, a glamorous 
situation, right? You didn't go there for the fashion. You didn't go there right. for the vibes, right? Right, right. Also, now this was really interesting to me. In the pre-department store era, most shopping was done via barter. So yeah. if you went to the general store, you could negotiate, haggle your price. Right. They weren't going to be like, all flour is $1 a pound for everyone. It was like you could right. negotiate, you could trade, you could work something out. Department stores were different because they had fixed prices. So you couldn't go into Stewart's, this department store neither of us have ever heard of, and be like, <laughs> I see that you're trying to sell these gloves for $2, but how about I give you $1.50? Like you, you couldn't do that. And the other thing that was really interesting that I was reading about this era of like hagg haggling and bartering for all of your purchases is that both parties involved in every negotiation assumed that they would somehow be ripped off in the end. So it wasn't mm -mm. like a fun, positive experience either. But it filled consumers' minds with this sense of distrust with anyone who was selling you stuff. Right. And so when they would come into these department stores and see that things had a set price, it kind of sketched them out. And we'll talk about that more. But I thought that was really interesting too because like I – I, I could see you actually, Jenny, being really good at like haggling. Are you? <laughs> what do you mean? How? I don't know. I just, I, I, it's like a skill that I admire because like my grandma Sandy is, is a genius of it. Like she should teach right. like, a TED talk or something about it. But like <laughs> I am just like, oh, you said $2. Okay. Like I'm never like, how about a dollar seventy five? Like I just, right. I don't know why I'm terrible at it. I have to say it depends on the, I mean, obviously I've done a lot of thrifting and estate sailing and things like that, or just whatever, where you, that situation would come up. And I do have to say, if something is fair now, like if someone's like, oh, it's two bucks, like I'll be like, sure, you know, whatever. I'm not going to drill someone. But if someone's like doing ridiculous prices, I'll be like, come on, dude, let's, let's, let's talk serious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not paying $25 for that. How about 10 or whatever? It was funny. I was just at a, a, a an estate or it was more like a garage sale. And this woman asked $3 to this guy for like a, a some kind of pot, like a cooking pot. And he was like, how about two? And she's like, no, three. And I was like, you guys, okay, this is ridiculous. And he didn't buy the pot because she wouldn't do two over three. <laughs> so it's like some people just love the negotiation. Yes. And that's like part of their thing that they like got a deal. Like for me, it's like if I wanted the pot, two or three dollars is not going to break it. You know what I mean? Like make or break my situation. If it was like ten dollars versus two dollars, okay, maybe. But it's just people just love to haggle, you know? Yeah. And conversely, some people are really delusional about their pricing. Like we went yes. to a yard sale last weekend where it was like everything that was at the yard sale, someone had looked up on eBay to see what the buy it now price was and was right. listening at that. And it's like, okay, well, you clearly don't know eBay because rarely is anything sold at the buy it now price. But like, it would right. be like, here's a light fixture for $275. And it's just like, someone was selling the same thing down the road for 10 bucks. Like it was... I. Dustin and I were like, they're literally not going to sell anything today. <laughs> like, this is yeah, ridiculous. and some people, like, that's, I think that's what happened. I mean, we've talked about this in um, our past, I think, episode about estate sales and thrifting and stuff, where people, when eBay and stuff started coming in, people just um, immediately think, like, oh, that, that, you know, look up the price and that's what it is. It's like, no, that's not really, I mean, that's what they would like to get for it, maybe. But also, like, for me, if I'm going to spend a higher ticket, like, price on something, I would expect that to be cleaned. You know, mm -hmm. to be like, you know, that there's like, like, that's why you go to like, maybe like a, a nicer, like vintage shop or an antique store or something like that. And they've tested it. They might have rewired something, cleaned it up. So it's like looking really sexy. You know, if you're just like throwing yeah. something out of your attic, that's kind of, 
it's like, you know, and you, it's, it also depends on how much you want to move it. If you, if you just have to get that price, then you can hold on to it forever. You know, <laughs> let's see what happens. Totally. Totally. Well, yeah. I always just assume I'm like, that person doesn't really want to sell anything. Right. Like they are, t- they don't want to part with these things, but they feel obligated to. So this is why they're trying this. I don't know. Right. Trying it on for size. I'm like analyzing everyone I see at a yard sale. <laughs> everyone. Okay. <laughs> so the other thing about shopping in this era is like shopping was always very straightforward and transactional. Get the item and leave. You didn't make a day of hanging out at your local dry goods or shop or general store. You know, you weren't like, let's have lunch and then shop some more. Yeah. Yeah, You're coming in, getting your shopping done, going home, no lingering. Like one thing I noticed in the very early era of inter- internet dating sites, like I'm thinking specifically OkCupid, is that sometimes people would list shopping as a like an activity or hobby or an interest. Right. And like that didn't exist at this time. Well, I mean, right. neither did OkCupid, but like you, if, <laughs> if you said one of my interests is shopping, people would be like, literally, what do you mean? Like, yeah. what's wrong with you? Shopping so, what? Yeah. Yeah. So the de- you can thank the department store for – being able to list shopping as an interest on your Tinder profile now because (laughs) these so-called palaces of consumption had like stunning architecture and fixtures and they felt just as ornate and fancy as what would have been the fanciest other building you could find at that time, which was a church. I was just going to say. like really, really nice. Richard Tedlow is a professor at the Harvard Business School who's written a lot on retailing and he has a lot of really good ideas I don't know, just thoughtful things to say about department stores. I'm going to quote him a few times. But he said, department stores were a new mode of retailing. They became destinations. They became places where you shopped not solely for procurement, but for entertainment. Right. Which is like, I mean, like, I get it. You know, shopping is a social activity now. People do it to relax. I mean, now, I guess, even at home when you're like, scrolling and clicking and buying on your phone it still is like an activity and not just like a like a errand you had to run um this is also the beginning of those ideas of the customer is always right Mm. and your satisfaction is guaranteed or your money back why slippery slope there slippery slope yeah Yeah. seriously (laughs) and then millions of lives were ruined (laughs) Yeah, for the rest the of whole time, right? Just crumbled. Right, right. Um, but this began because this idea of a fixed price was really intimidating and uncomfortable mm. for shoppers, and they assumed that this price was created to rip them off. Okay. So these that makes con- more sense. It then, does. I guess. It does. Yeah. I mean, I'm still. I still wish we could all erase the customers yeah. always right from our brains. Yes. Um, these kinds of policies made the shopper feel less anxious about not bargaining for a price because you know. It, it felt uncomfortable that everyone would pay the same price that you couldn't go in there and work it out on your own. Right. And I guess it's like, gives you like that comfort of like, get, I mean, people still use that to this day, right? Like the satisfaction yeah. guaranteed. Like if you don't like it, you can return it. Don't worry. You're going to love it. Like that whole kind of vibe. Yeah. I mean, that's what returns yeah. are, right? But like yeah. pre-department stores, if you'd bought something at your local general store and returned it, they'd be like, No. So right. All sales are final. You yeah. know, this is probably yeah. the invention of all sales are final as well. Right. Um, but Ted Lowe, the person I quoted earlier, he said, the department stores were one of America's first commercial institutions of trust. They mm. worked to take your mind off of price. Interesting. 
Well, they're creating that whole like environment, right? Like you're saying, like some of these early department stores, especially had these beautiful spaces. You'd come in, you'd browse, I mean, browsing, right? That's probably like a whole concept that was born here too, right? Yeah, yeah. Browsing, yeah. looking around. It's like you're, you're, it's like you're creating a mood. You're creating an environment. You're like feeling sexy. You're looking at mm-hmm. stuff. And you're like, ooh, that would look great on me, you know. And it's like, it's this whole kind of experience. It's experience shopping, really. Right, and you know, I mean, this isn't a feeling I've had for a long time because I don't go to a lot of department stores, and I would say most of my department store experiences in this century have been more depressing than glamorous. Yeah. But every once in a while in your life, you've gone into like a really nice department store, and you have felt that glamour, that like aspirational feeling, that. I don't know, just like luxury of being there, you know? Totally, yeah. I Things, everything smelled good and yeah. like beautifully and it was beautifully displayed. Totally. And it was just, yeah. Totally. And everything there was so desirable instantly. I remember, I mean, this was like 2000, 2001, going to Seattle for the first time and going to the Nordstrom flagship store there. And the thing that really struck me was that there were like televisions in the bathroom. I mean, First off, Nordstrom, legendary nice bathrooms. Let's be real. Ooh, always, okay. always a nice bathroom. Meanwhile, you go to like the bathrooms in the Macy's and Herald Square and they're like, <laughs> it's like being at a rest stop, you know? Yeah. I mean, going to bathrooms in Midtown are not great, like it's across true. the board, no matter where you are, you know, it's like it's true. the sexiest bathrooms aren't that sexy. It's true. Some, you know, I've, I, as you have spent a lot of my adulthood going to like shows in sketchy venues and house parties and basements and the bathroom situations, you know, there's, there's been some really wet bathrooms. Mm -hmm. Some, a lot of them are painted black and covered with graffiti and you can't tell if they're dirty or not, but you just assume. (laughs) So dark. You don't know what's going on. Right. Yet still some of the worst, most horrifying bathroom experiences of my life have been in Midtown. (laughs) Yeah. I vouch for that. <laughs> At least the Lower East Side or like a, you know, some kind of warehouse party, you expect it, right? Yeah, yeah. But then you go into some place and you're like, wow, okay, this is how we're going to roll. All right, they're doing this, you know? This is Macy's. <laughs> you know right. what I, mean? I do have to say, though, growing up, because I grew up, you know, um, in the tri state area and we would come into the city and go to like Macy's and whatever. And I do remember the escalators at Macy's being pretty awesome i don't know if you remember those like they're they're wooden mm-hmm. like they had like oh. wooden rails and yeah. i was just like "Ooh, this is old timey feeling and it had like all the old um they had elevators too with like the old art deco looking like mm-hmm. lights and like metal work and stuff but i always remember like riding on those wooden escalators and being like "Ooh, this is so cool yeah. yeah, and I do feel like like that Macy's in Herald Square is trying to like get some of that glamour back. So they've been like pulling away some of the weird drop ceiling nonsense they did in like the eighties and the nineties, right? Um, because some like like I don't know if you've ever gone to well, it's a Macy's now in Philadelphia, but it used to be Wanamaker's, and it's in oh, Center I have. City. They have that's the one that has the organ, right? Yes. Yes. yes, and they do this Christmas light show every year where yes. you like lay on the floor. Anyway, that store is still stunning. Yes, like, it is. Like, I, I went a few, like not that long, maybe five years ago or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be great if they would just pull back a little bit more of the weird stuff they've done in the Macy's era, but it still is like – it's cool because it's got like balconies all the way around and you look down into like a center sort of like – 
I don't know, courtyard of the, of the yes. department store. And like, that's how I picture all old department stores being. And yeah. Well, that's like the, one of the quintessential ones, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about John Wanamaker because he was definitely one of the early giants of the department store era. But this is like, this is what department stores in their golden era were like, pre-mall, you know, pre yep. the limited, all of that stuff. They were beautiful. Like, and back when people like we, when architecture was important and now, you know, I feel like people just want to throw things up quick and dirty and fast. Yeah. And, cheap yeah. and, you know, and that was when like the architectural, like you would build a building because it was like beautiful and you wanted to like, you know, show everyone how gorgeous we could make this thing, you know, but now we don't do that anymore. No, really. we're just like, how fast can we open this Chipotle? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So until about World War II, department stores had so much power and prestige. They sponsored parades, art exhibitions, patriotic lectures, you name it. I mean, Macy's still sponsors the Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City, right? Department stores grew from just a place where ladies of leisure would spend their days shopping and lunching to a civic institution. And in that era between, like, say, 1900 until World War II – This is where a lot of these department stores created things that we take for granted now as shoppers. So like Marshall Fields, which was, you know, if you're from Chicago, you know that one. Also, Marshall Fields used to sell these mints that were sort of like a thin peppermint patty called Frango Mints, and they were really good. Um, Marshall Fields invented the bridal registry. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was also the first store to offer revolving credit, a.k.a. a store credit card. Mm, They also created the concept of personal shoppers and all the early stuff, all the early stuff. And here's one that was shocking to me, book signings, because Mm. apparently their book department was legendary and they would have all kinds of events. That Uh, makes sense. I mean, in theory. Yeah, I get it. I mean, imagine going to Macy's or Nordstrom to buy a book right now. Well, you could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, Marshall Fields was the first department store to use escalators. Interesting. So I don't know what you were doing before then, just walking up lots and lots of stairs and getting tired. Yeah. I guess elevators, elevators, you know. Right. Because escalator to me is very department store mall vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like the backbone sure. of the, that whole world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. You you can't have a department store without an escalator or a yeah. mall. Yeah. So important. God, I love an escalator. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> A lot of people also credit Marshall Fields with inventing the idea of the show-stopping holiday window display. Yes. This was a big influence on me as a kid. Oh, my God. Me too. So I I mean, I haven't been to New York now since before the pandemic, but I would constantly be in New York for work, you know, and I would always go check out the window displays because I had so much, like, nostalgia for it from when I was a kid. I mean, I feel like if you grew up in the part of the country where you and I grew up – it was like every every year you had to go have some sort of family Christmas holiday outing to a major city so you could like look at the Christmas tree and look mm-hmm. at the windows and do some Christmas shopping or whatever, right? Yeah, totally. I, I feel like as technology has made like uh, animatronic windows easier, uh, the windows just aren't as good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would be curious to like know what time that shifted a little bit because I, I mean, I, growing up in the Tri-State area, I went, my dad works in Manhattan and I would come in with him and always did the windows. I always loved it. I mean, so much so that 
I mean, I'll, we'll get into this a little bit later too. My, some of my highlight like moments um, that influenced me that were <laughs> surrounded by department stores, but um, I was very into window dressing and there was a time in maybe the late nineties that um, Simon Doonan was like a, a serious um, window dresser uh, for Barney's and stuff. He did a lot of their, like, I think art, direction stuff um and so he did really amazing barney's windows and i was like so fascinated with it that i like wanted to actually be a window dresser when i was like i grew up you know because i just i love this idea of like creating these small installation spaces Mm -hmm. um where you kind of create whatever you wanted and you know speaking also which is still i still hard for me to wrap my head around like pre-internet where like I didn't see examples of like other ways that like someone who was interested in like sculpture, soft sculpture or installation, like what we would do with ourselves. Like, it's what do you true. do with that? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now there's, I mean, if God, if I could go back in time, I'd be like, little Jenny, you can be an art director, you know, it's like, it's okay. There's like options. But I was like, I'm going to be a window dresser because it was like a literal way that I could make art and install it in a space and create these little environments, you know? Um, so I was obsessed with Simon Doonan for anyone who doesn't know who Simon Doonan is. Um, you should definitely, uh, give that a search because he's had a really interesting career. He has been working in department stores, I think from the get go, um, you know, since he started working and he really made a name for that, um, like window dressing and that cool, like vibe for a minute, like in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, he's just like an interesting guy and, you know, married to also another one of my design heroes, Jonathan Adler, um, (laughs) who has a really cool, like OG story of how he got started too. But yeah. And I actually, when I graduated from high school, I wrote Simon Dune in a letter and telling him wow. that I was so into him and he so inspired me and that I wanted to come work for him. And then I realized once I sent the letter off that I spelled his name wrong, which is no! like, Ooh, you know, like, uh, and that was like back in the day. It's like, that was like one Oh one. Don't fuck that up. So uh, I never heard back from Simon, Simon Doonan, but still he, he definitely influenced me in a way that was like really launched me into like really into interior design is what I ended up kind of landing in. But I mean, I think that's a really good point. Cause I was one of those kids. I mean, I still, love this, who love to make dioramas, right? Yeah. Like literally my favorite thing to do would have dropped out of school and become a professional diorama builder if that were a job. Once again, like if you were into that kind of stuff, there wasn't there wasn't a, a clear career path. And so it's, it's not like my parents were like, you can't make dioramas anymore, but it was also like clear that that wasn't going to like get me into college or anything. Right. Um, yeah. But I do, I mean – I feel like the – it's not even like I feel like – the technology or lack thereof in terms of creating, you know, items for these windows and like animating them and stuff was so limited that it really created this like super innovative, yeah, super creative group of people who created these windows, you know, like yeah. it – like amazing. Whereas now – the past couple of years when I've been in New York and I've walked by the Macy's windows, like they're still entertaining. And of course I want to see them. And yeah. obviously someone designed them, but they have right. this very mass produced vibe. They do. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's the difference too. If you do look at like, I, I just kind of went into a little quick image search of um, some of Simon Doonan's windows, which were like more like nineties, you know, um, mid to late nineties, I think uh, they, 
like he really you like the, the materials that they had i mean there's probably a little bit of that like some movement or things like electronic stuff happening but they really create like you're like oh wow they created andy warhol's face out of a shredded paper and a thing you know it's like you're like oh wow. there's just like really some real serious creativity around that um and it's still like you're right it still is but i think also probably the budgets have changed it's not as like new and hot i feel like i don't know I, I think things have changed a little bit and they have become more mass produced there's obviously someone who's art directing and like organizing that whole situation but it doesn't feel as inspired yeah as it used yeah. to to me yeah i agree i agree it's just there's less room for innovation and my guess is that part of that reason is that they want to like mass produce like replicate. for all the stores and yeah, stuff. yeah yeah it's a bummer yeah. right it is a bummer also, like, could the film Mannequin take place here in well, this year? Yeah. <laughs> I know you're it, a fan. It was funny. That was on my list. Um, that is That was a huge movie for me at the time. So I think I talked about this on our last episode when we were talking about, like, working women and um, some of the movies that I, I watched as a kid. So my grandmother, I think I mentioned, she every year would get me a bunch of VHS tapes, you know, of, like, and I still am, like, who did she talk to to get these VHS tapes? Because it was, like, obviously, like, the hot movies of the year, but there were some weird ones in there, you know, that I was, like, oh, like, she must have gone to a video store and, like, whoever that person was, I wish I could meet them. Um, I was, like, give me all the hot stuff. So Mannequin was one of the, the uh, VHS tapes that she gave me and I watched it like literally 500 times I mean I watched it a million times and I was obsessed with it and also probably influenced because that was 87 I think um and that definitely like influenced my uh interest probably in window dressing too um Mm -hmm. because that was like again a viable option for like an artist or like a freelance person to like make their way in the world and I mean it's it's probably I haven't seen it in a while because it's not really streaming anywhere but it took place in um, John uh, Wanamaker. Yeah. Yeah, department store. What a name. I feel like if you have that last name, you have to be some, like, (laughs) captain of industry, right? Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody important. Um, And it was just, like, it had a dream. It's, like, Andrew McCarthy, Kim Cattrall, and then Estelle Getty. Yeah, I had forgotten that she was in there for oh a second. God. I was like, oh, right. And it was like a dueling, like the idea was like, it's actually like, it, the plot's like a little bit weird. So Kim Cattrall is traveling through time and space, <laughs> um, as one does. And she, I don't, I have to, I, I was just like looking it up a little bit just to remember, to get my facts straight. I think she was, she supposed to be Egyptian or she was in Egypt at the time. It, it's a little, yes, a little. I think you're right. Loose. And I'm also right. like. That was a little questionable. I'm like, what? Like, she's yeah, like a white no. girl and yeah, gets, whatever. There's problems. Yeah. There's always going to be problems. But she's traveling through time. And instead of like, you know, she was granted a wish to instead of getting like an arranged marriage, she could like go to the United States or something and like fall in love. So she comes to, so Andrew McCarthy, who's just so Andrew McCarthy in this movie, which I love. Um, I waited on him once at a restaurant and he was wearing exactly what you'd think he was wearing. He's wearing little white linen pants with like white tube socks and like shitty sneakers. And you're like exactly <laughs> yeah. what Andrew McCarthy would wear. Out it's like a really nice restaurant. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, you know, and he creates this mannequin and like brings her to life and no one can see her, but him. And he like, they have these night adventures in the, in the department store. And it's like, you know, this whole thing. And then they like save the department store by making amazing window displays that people come and see and like revive this kind of like has been department store, um, into like the hot shit place, you know, which is like hilarious. Um, but you know, I think that like, 
that movie definitely influenced me and probably led me into my love of Simon Doonan and, and all that kind of installation <laughs> art. But if you haven't seen it, I, I it's definitely cheesy. It's definitely like that eighties, like silly, you know, like love story comedy, but I think it's worth a watch, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like all movies of that era. It's incredibly flawed. Uh, so you have to oh, yeah. really have a couple drinks before you watch it. So you're not like yeah. so disgusted by some of the dumb stuff in it. Yeah. But, uh, it, it is really entertaining. Now, the sequel, Mannequin 2, which is in no way really related to Mannequin 1. Have you seen Mannequin 2? I haven't. I was just looking through, and I was like, I, I never saw it. It's really bad. I'm sure. I remember our family renting it because we were like, oh, well, we all loved Mannequin 1. Let's get right. Mannequin 2. And it was like immediately like – the budget was clearly about a quarter of the first one and it takes place in like a weird suburban department store. And I don't know. It's, it's all really, really weird. And also just like really offensive too. I mean, I'll, wa- I'm going to have to watch it. <laughs> you should watch you know, it. Just, I'm interested. I just need in it for my yeah. cultural bank. Yeah. yeah you, you need to, you need to, but just like set the, your expectations really low. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> even mannequin, I loved it at the time. I was like a kid. So I was like, sort of like, Oh my God, a mannequin's coming. Alive. You know, I was like an idiot kid. I was like, this is kind of fun. Um, but still it's not like an amazing, it's like a cult hit, you know, like if you saw it then and you have like a nostalgia for it, it's kind of like a weird cross section of like a moment in yeah, yeah. history. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't have high expectations <laughs> for the sequel, but <laughs> I like that. I like trash. So I need to like, you yeah, know, it's got great that. music. That's the most important. Part I'm sure. It. Yeah. It's great that you talked about John Wanamaker, where a mannequin was set, because John Wanamaker opened the first so-called modern department store in Philadelphia in 1877. So some of the innovations here, which are like hilarious to me, the first these were the first store to use price tags. Wow. Where like you would go up and everything would have a price on it, you know, instead of just like you'd have to ask, which by the way, if I ever have to ask how much something costs, I just don't, I don't bother. I just never I buy it. I hate that. It makes, it's just awkward. You know, it's like, let me know up front so I know what I'm dealing with. Cause then you feel like you're being cheap, but also you don't have money and it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't yeah. like Exactly. Exactly. Um, this was the first store to use electric lighting. Oh. Um, yeah, that was in 1878. Uh, I don't know what they were doing before. I guess candles or something. It's really disturbing. Wow, that is some drama. Could you imagine, like, shopping by candlelight? Oh, I, my God. Romantic. Actually, it's probably, like, um, gas gas lamps. Um, yes, right. Out here. Still. Where, uh, still. It's pretty weird. Out here yeah. where I live, 
um, some of the Amish stores, like like the Burden Hand Farm Supply is owned by an Amish family. And so there's no electricity in there, although somehow they process credit card transactions. I'm not really sure. Anyway, <laughs> all the lighting and the fans are gas powered. Oh, wow. So it is kind of weird. I mean, they're not open very late, but during the winter when it gets dark really early, it's kind of like spooky shopping in there. Yeah. Like really a little, it's a little hard to see. Um, also, John Wanamaker was the first department store to have an in-store telephone system. So, you know, different departments could call one another. Right. And just check a price or check a thing. Totally. And yep. my favorite thing of all, they were the first uh, store to use pneumatic tubes to transfer cash and documents throughout the store, which I, I love. I love that. Uh, I, find it, I found it so future as a kid. I, mean, I we go know. To, like, the bank and my mom, like the bank, remember the drive, everyone did like the drive up window at a bank. That was like oh, also yeah. a thing. Yeah. And my mom would put in her checks and they would shoot up. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like Jetson style. Totally. You know? I mean, I think some banks still use it, although like. When was the last time you were at a bank? Not just a drive-through of a yeah, bank. I mean, right? maybe in like an ATM. That's pretty much as yeah, far as Yeah, me too. I had to go to a bank recently to like reset a password or something stupid I couldn't do online, but barely I'm ever at a bank these days. Right, yeah. right. But I do have so many memories of like my grandma going with my grandma to the bank, going through the drive-through, putting the checks and everything in the like the little canister and it getting yep. sucked over and then, you know, th- something would happen in there and then it would come back and it would be like the receipt and lollipops for all of us in the car, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, how sad. Like, this was like our thrilling moment out. You know what I mean? Like, now, like, kids are, like have games and stuff and, like, they're always on their phone and, like, they have as entertainment and, like, movies in the car and shit. We would be like, cool, they just put something in a tube and <laughs> got over to another lady. And it's like, that was like our thrilling entertainment for the it's afternoon. It's true. Ride, it's like, know? wow. I, The two most exciting things to me to do with my grandma during the summer were to go to the bank to see the pneumatic tubes and then to go to the drive-through car wash. This is what we had. Right. These are the entertainment, like, outlets that we were experiencing. (laughs) Um, Also, as we're talking about this, I'm wondering that as banks and in-person banking and drive-through banking kind of declined, what kind of impact did this have on the lollipop industry? Ooh, that's a good question. Because you know it they did. don't do that as much. Even now, well, you know, now, like, all the moms, I mean, like, that I see around, like, in Brooklyn and so they're all, like, no sugar and everyone's gluten-free and this and that. And so, like, no one's giving out lollipops at, like, doctor's offices or anything anymore. Yeah, what do you give or out? Or anything. Yeah, I bet. Fidget spinners or something. That's, that's another um, episode you need yeah. to look at. <laughs> lollipop industry. What happened to lollipops? <laughs> Um, another department store that's very famous that had a television show about it on PBS is Selfridges. I don't know if you watch this show, Jenny, no. but my my friend Jem, who's been on the podcast before, actually got me into it back in the day, and we would talk. What's about it called? It. it was called Mr. Selfridge. You can okay. probably still watch it online. It was actually really entertaining, um, and it starred Jeremy Piven. Although we always oh. joke that our one friend said that Jerry, Jeremy Piven was very unconvincing. I don't know. Uh, it was really entertaining. <laughs> although I can't remember much that happened on it, but it was like very dramatic. Yeah. Very, so it was like very soapy. Um, so Selfridges is a real department store. It was established in 1909, and it made shopping even more special and experiential. Uh, it was actually founded by Henry Gordon Selfridge, a.k.a. Mr. Selfridge of the show, who began his career at Marshall Fields in Chicago. And like now, as we just talked about, like Marshall Fields was like a major innovator, you know, getting people to spend their money, right? So he took everything he learned and went to London to open his own store, Selfridges. Mm. So he was an American, by the way. 
Um, Even though his name – he sounds very British, right? So one thing that the department store did that no other department store had been doing yet was it advertised very heavily, like in newspapers. And it encouraged customers to shop for fun, not just for necessity. Right. Again, back to this whole – I mean, at the same time, was this like – in culture, I would assume this would line up that this time people were making a little bit more money and they had more dispensable, like more income coming in. I mean, at, uh, it depends who you are, like all yeah, things, sure. right? Still, sure, a, sure. still a pretty massive wealth gap there. Right. Um, so one thing that was like Selfridge's like claim to fame was his ability to create reasons to keep people in a store, which by the way is like even today, someone is in a corporate office somewhere for some store talking about ways to keep people in the store That's longer. like 101, right? Right, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had so many meetings about this kind of stuff throughout my career. You know, that's why you go to stores and you see that they, like, put in, a, like, an espresso bar or, like, they have a they have a bar bar or a place to sit yeah. down and hang out or play video games or browse books or whatever. So he was, like, the creator of this idea. So his store had a library – a roof wow. garden, reading and writing rooms where you could go read or write a letter or just reflect, uh, a first aid room, a wow. silence room, just so you could go like take a zero with soft lights and deep comfy chairs. That sounds, ama- that sounds amazing, by I the know. way. I, like, I could stay there all day. I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. Of course, the store, uh, the store also had several pretty affordable but nice restaurants you know, keep you, keep the ladies in there all day. Right. Uh, the, the store would host educational exhibits. I know the first monoplane was exhibited there and lots of other stuff. Just like, let's get everyone in the store as often as possible and keep them here. Like, make a day of it, going to Selfridges. Right. And on top of that, the Selfridges staff was encouraged to sell, sell, sell. And this was right. like a new idea too because before that, you go back to your general store, your dry goods store, they're not trying to sell you anything. They're like, what do you want? Let me get it. Give right. me the money. Bye. Right. <laughs> you know? It's very transactional. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. These department stores became like social, uh, you know, experiences where you would be like, oh, let's, I have to go get a gift and then we can have lunch and like go sit in the garden and do all these things. So it's like before that, I mean, I'm trying to think what would those places would have been. I mean, they're not really, they didn't really exist in this level. No, they didn't yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It was just like you went and did something else. Like you went to church, I guess. I don't right, know. Yeah, there weren't a lot yeah. of places to go. You know what I mean? It was just like such a different time. It's hard yeah. for me to imagine. Although it's almost like where I am now where there's like nowhere to go because it doesn't <laughs> feel safe or I'm not interested. Um, right. We actually went to the mall the other day because it was my birthday and there was literally nothing we could do. But there was an arcade at the mall and we could wear masks. And we went to the mall and I was like, wow, the mall is so boring. I'm not yeah. interested in any of these stores at all. No, because now it's become, I mean, this this setup that you're telling me with like a garden and a silence room, I'm like, hell yeah, sign me up for all that. Um, but the mall now is just like shit food, you know, like fast food, kind of like shitty stores that you don't really care about. And then like walking, I mean, it's maybe nice place to, remember used, people used to just walk in the mall in the morning? The mall walkers. I had a job at the mall and uh, I worked for a bookstore. And so on Sundays, I would always open. So I'd have to get there Mm -hmm. at like 11 because the mall opened at noon. You know, I would like count the money and get everything set up for the day. And I would see the mall walkers walking back and forth. And there would be a few who kept trying to come and get in the store 
before yeah. I pulled up the gate and have to be like, we don't open until noon, you know. Right. <laughs> um, we should definitely do a follow-up episode about malls because I have like, I mean, so many stories, so many yes. thoughts there. I will yeah. say in Japan, the malls capture what Selfridge was doing where, yes. I mean, there's not – there are like gardens and like places to hang out and just look at the internet. But there's also like – obviously stores but like good food and good restaurants and Southeast arcades Asia's like that too like yeah. Thailand when I go with my husband like we're it's sometimes you just like go hang out in the mall from it's also really cool in there which is nice yeah. um, when it's hot, but they, they're actually like really nice malls with like high-end stores and you know things like that yeah I mean in Japan it is totally reasonable to spend four or five six hours in a mall because you might have a delicious meal and go use the photo booths and do some shopping and there'll be like an art exhibit and like maybe a ferris wheel or something and the other great thing about malls in japan is that they're really focused on specific customers so like i personally prefer the teenager mall like we go to the teenager (laughs) mall that's where my interests are i'm a teenager um and we'll like be there all day we'll be like should we go to the dessert buffet maybe you know what about the ferris wheel like what do you want to do like (laughs) it's, it's just like fun right um well speaking of japan the most the first modern style department stores were mitsukoshi and matsuksakaya which both began mm. as kimono stores and then just rapidly started carrying more stuff. And in 1924, yeah. Matsusakaya began allowing customers to wear their street shoes indoors rather than like, oh. taking them off and putting on slippers, right. which was like a big cultural shift. Yeah. In the 20s, many of the big Japanese railways began opening department stores of their own at railway mm. hubs right in the train terminals, and you still see that now. Interesting. And they're massive. Hmm. Every big train station has a massive department store attached to it. And I just thought that that was just like how it was. And so it was interesting to learn that like this is when it started. I did right. not realize that the train, the railway companies had started these stores. I did think it was odd that they frequently shared names, but there you go. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've been around Tokyo and a little bit north, but I haven't spent a ton of time around other, like, train areas. Yeah. It's, like, every every even, like, medium size or small city at the train station, there's a department store. Interesting. Yeah. I just was like, oh, I guess it's just because it's more convenient for people. I mean, that is part of it, right? Sure, but also yeah. because people are coming through, it's really, really smart. This white carnation is the symbol of the most popular savings event around. White Flower Day. One day only, only at Macy's. You know that. White Flower Day means outstanding savings on every floor. You know that too. But did you know White Flower Day is tomorrow at all Macy's? Well, now you do. White Flower Day. White Flower Day. Well, not a new new store, but new to me, Montgomery Ward. New because I didn't know they carried so many brand names. Up Sony, Maytag, Jordache, and Selection. In microwaves alone, I saw nine different models. So I became a new Montgomery Ward customer. Things are changing at Montgomery Ward, and we're earning some pretty tough customers. Get the lowest prices of the year on these microwave ovens, now at Montgomery Ward. Department stores continued to grow and grow, but they were still primarily, for the most part, a city thing for a long time, right? Because that's where the bulk of people were. The thing about department stores that was, you know, 
a minus, if you will, for them was that they would push a lot of smaller shops out of business because the department stores had more access to money. They had more control of the vendors supplying goods to stores. And more and more people just opted to go to department stores over smaller neighborhood shops, not because they were cheaper, Mm. just because they were fancier, right? And you felt fancy shopping there. I mean, I would say we've seen fast forward like 100 years to now – We've we've seen that like places like Amazon or Walmart are pushing, you know, all these other retailers out of business, not because they're cooler or nicer or fancier feeling, but because they're cheaper. But -hmm. the same kind of thing is happening. We're like, you know, most of the groceries purchased in the United States are come from a Walmart, and so Walmart, for example, has this massive control over food pricing and production in the United States. Right. that's kind of what was happening back then, but with department stores and maybe like clothes and shoes and makeup and stuff like that. Right. So ironically, in the late 1900s, larger department store chains would, you know, devour and destroy these smaller family-owned local department stores that had totally destroyed even smaller locally-owned businesses. Yeah. So it just sort of like spreads over time. So – Fast forward to after World War II, consumerism became a way of life. Like everything that we've talked about happening got ramped up times 10. And so these department stores continued to thrive and multiply and they no longer had to be in a big city because there were smaller cities and then there were bigger towns. And so there were many more places to open these stores. So they opened a ton. And then came the mall era. Right. Of course, department stores moved into malls. Yeah. And they became the anchor stores for a mall, right? Yep. I mean, you can't talk about department stores and not talk about malls a little bit, you know, especially that time period. Absolutely. Because they're so, like, hand in hand. You know, you have the big, like, our, we had two malls. We had Trumbull Mall, which is, like, kind of the regular mall with, like, normal stuff. And then we had, like, the fancy mall. And they all... They, <laughs> Well, you know, the, the fancy mall was in Stamford, Connecticut, and they had, like, that was, like, kind of, like, sexier stuff. But they both had, like, at least two or three big department stores that sort of anchored it. And then you're, like, your little stores peppered through. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, and this was, this was pretty normal, right? Like, you can picture, like, malls almost sort of look like barbells with, like, the two big things on the end that were always, like, at least two department stores, right? And then, like, the little, like, walkway in between. Of course, then maybe they'd have a more complicated shape, but every end had a department store. Um, And that's that's just how they were, right? And, I mean, you go now to a mall. Like, even the mall on the other side of Lancaster is a big mall, and it's probably, like, one of the better malls in central Pennsylvania. But, like, two of the department store anchor stores are gone, yeah. I mean, the store, the mall itself still seems to be doing really well, but like there's just these massive empty spaces sitting there. <clears throat> but yeah. in the early days of malls and through the 80s, really, you couldn't have a mall without a department store. Like you just yeah. couldn't. No one would move in there. Stores yeah. wanted to be guaranteed that department store traffic. So in the pre mall era, you had to spend your time at a department store if you wanted to have one stop access to all kinds of things. And you didn't have any other option for a place where you could both hang out and shop. So department stores were that place. But guess what? That's what malls are too, you know? It's a place where you could hang out all day, eat, see a movie, socialize, and buy stuff. Furthermore, as the 80s and the peak of the mall era rolled in, this was the era of the specialty retailer. And this is what they're still called. This is basically any store in a mall 
that isn't a department store. Mm. So Limited, Express, Gap, Bath and Body Works. These are all specialty retailers, which is okay. feels just so antiquated to me too. Yeah. Um, but this at the time, at least in the 80s, what made these stores so innovative is that they all catered to a specific customer type or lifestyle or aesthetic rather than just a customer grouped by age, which department stores still do. Like, let's think about the departments for that are available for women to shop in, right? right. Juniors. That's for yep. teenagers. Missies, that's for everyone else, I guess, except there'll be like one other department that might be called women that's right. for even older women. And then, of course, there'll be the plus department like back in the corner, you know? Yeah. And hide so, them all. Hide all the big ladies in the back. Yeah, of course, right? And so it's like it's not – grouped by like the kind the departments don't exist around like the kind of stuff you're into like oh I'm, I'm a sporty them. girl who yeah, yeah like exactly. or whatever yeah yeah I like a retro vibe there's none of that like it's like how old are you there's right. your department good luck you know <laughs> yeah and I think it's one of the reasons that department stores are just they feel just like so meh because there's nothing there that appeals to me you know but think about it like when you were a teen right and you know pre-internet whatever and we'd had we had magazines that would, mm-hmm. as far as like, that would like kind of like inform you of like fashion and art things happening or interesting trends or silhouettes of whatever people are wearing or that kind of stuff. And like, I mean, really, like, fashion would be like magazines or department stores or some sort of store. Because otherwise, I mean, where are you? I mean, maybe like, you know, empty, like, you know, shows and what people are wearing and stuff like that. But when you're going to actually shop and look for stuff, that was really it. And they dictated like what we saw and what we thought was cool, you know, which is crazy now to think about. <laughs> I um, know. I'm just like, ew, like, don't tell me what to do. Um, yeah. I mean, and granted, you know, as you were too, we were thrifters. So that was what I think one of the things that really like motivated me as well is that like I didn't want the same thing that everybody else had right. and it was like full price so like if my mom I mean how many times when you like go back to school you'd go to the you know go to department store and get like a couple new sweaters or shirts or pants or your stuff for school or like prom you'd be like okay mm-hmm. go. I mean it's, it's amazing we all didn't have the same prom dresses or you know because it's like we're all <laughs> buying from the same places I think that's what drove me to really love thrifting and that sort of stuff too because it was like I could try, I could test stuff out and it was cheap and like, I didn't have to like buy the nice thing that I know that I'll wear. I could like have fun with it, you know? So it was, I think that was one of the reasons why I was really drawn to that too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, you know, there were definitely, I would say through middle school, I was very aware of what everyone else was into. And there was that very serious, like herd mentality amongst like what my classmates would wear. Like there was one, six-month period where they were all wearing the same, like, ribbed tunic top from Express Mm. that wasn't cute, right? you know? But it was, like, what everyone wore every day and you had to wear it. Or, like, everybody was wearing, like, boat shoes without socks for a while. Right. Um, Which I did actually do and I got, like, really messed up my feet. Mary (laughs) Jane's or something. Everyone was wearing it. Yeah. Yeah. There were always these things. And you would do it, right? Right. Because you're young. Like, you're I young mean, and you just like want life to be chill. You want to fit in and like you're yeah. like, was wearing that stuff and you're like trying it on for size. Right. By the time I reached high school, I was like, I, I can't afford these clothes and I don't want them. So, <laughs> and my eyes were open to the world of thrifting. But that was – I mean – that's still not a majority of people, you know? Right. Um, and so these stores like oh Limited or Express and later like Aeropostale and American Eagle and Abercrombie, you name it, they 
gave people a sense of individuality by shopping there. Right. Um, which, I, of course, you know, we laugh at because we're like, oh, my God. It's like so, you know, that's corporate. just like a tie. Well, yeah, it's corporate. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not cool. And honestly, the one thing I noticed at the mall this week as we were walking through, I didn't go in any stores. I just looked in the windows. But I started to see that all these stores that for so long had focused on this individual lifestyle or customer were all kind of starting to look the same. Like Aeropostal looked exactly mm. like American Eagle. Right. And American Eagle looked exactly like Hollister and on and on and on. And it was just like all the same clothes basically in the mall yeah. no matter where you went. And so that you – know, what that does is it pushes people to look for the cheapest clothes, which then, you know, like makes shoddier clothes and makes people right. cycle through clothes faster. All the bad things that have happened in fast fashion, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons why they're happening. But one thing is that like there's no longer a – like a guaranteed individuality by shopping at a certain place. And so then you're just like, I want the cheapest thing. I don't care where it comes from. Well, a lot well, of times too, like those stores are getting, they're getting their product from maybe the same place in China um, or something. Yeah. You know 100%. I mean? So, so yeah. I know, I know I had a friend who worked in a little boutique and she was like, this is the same stuff they're selling at H and M. It's just like, you know, same print or whatever, but they're selling it as like a nicer, you know, trying to be like a nicer place. So that goes down to like production stuff now, which is gets kind of dicey these days. Oh, yeah. Well, like, yeah. for example, Victoria's Secret, right? I mean, I've never been like much. I, I There was a time in high school where I, maybe for six months I thought, I, I mean, I couldn't afford Victoria's Secret, but it seemed like it might be really sexy if I could. Right. But, <laughs> you know, there are people who maybe not as much now, but during a certain era, maybe in the aughts were obsessed with Victoria's Secret underwear or bras, thought they were the best quality, the best fit, whatever. I have shocking news for everyone. Everyone, Every chain that was selling underwear and bras at this po- point was getting it from the same factory that was making all the stuff for Victoria's Secret. I bet. I've worked multiple places in my career where the same vendors were making the underwear as Victoria's Secret. So, yeah. like, it's just it, – everybody's making the same stuff, right? It's called branding. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So – but back in the 80s, these specialty stores that were implying this like individuality, this lifestyle, creating this mood in a way that department stores really weren't anymore, they – I mean, they took a chunk of those department store sales. Yeah. And they also made the department stores seem older and less relevant. But department stores still managed to thrive in the 80s and I would say like the first half of the 90s yeah. by offering brands that you couldn't get at other stores. And I remember this – so clearly, especially from like middle school when like brands were so important. And I, of course, wish yeah. I could have those brands. So right. like Guess, Clinique, Esprit, Liz Claiborne. Yeah. Just like anything that like you would see ads for these brands in magazines, but they didn't have stores. Right. You'd go to a department store, you know? Right. And like where I lived, the fancy department store was called the Bonton, and they had all those brands. But for me, it was like, oh, the Bonton is like where rich people shop. Yeah. Because the most expensive clothes I could imagine at that point in my life were like Esprit and Guess and whatever else they were selling in there. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, department stores still felt kind of aspirational because of that. Um, here's a great quote from Ted Lowe talking about department stores' role as anchor stores kind of being their undoing. Mm. Malls depended on being anchored by two department stores, one at either end. What's in between those two stores? 
small stuff at first, but eventually there's a gap, unlimited, a banana republic. By going out to the malls and anchoring them, these department stores created traffic for a great many specialty stores that otherwise would have had a hard time creating any demand, essentially because they couldn't afford the advertising, which is a necessary cost of doing business in a department store. The boutique businesses could attack the department stores from the safety of the shadow of the department store. What has replaced the department store is the mall itself, which now plays the role of amusement place and social center. So basically, I get it. That makes malls, sense. Right. The malls wouldn't have succeeded without the department stores, but then the malls destroyed the department stores. Right. They built a monster. They like were like, hey, everybody, come hang out. We're going to fund this project. And then all these little guys came in, and then the little guys just made a bigger like mall department store in itself which makes right. sense yeah and as malls began to die off department stores were the first casualty you know you can still right. go to a mall that's doing really well and all the department store spots are empty yeah it's like um, stuff like uniqlo is there now or gap still might be there or something like that where versus like yeah the department stores are usually and if they are there they usually seem very quiet yes totally or like super depressing yes. like Every once in a while in my adult life, I found myself in a Macy's because I had a coupon or something for something Mm -hmm. specific they had in the kitchen section. It's always the kitchen section that brings me to Macy's. And it's weird in there. They're like not well maintained. They'll be like leaking ceilings and moldy carpet and just feels dirty and the fixtures are broken. It's depressing. It's It's not what that glamour used to be, you know? No. Plus, well, we know that, like, the rise of online shopping killed them all. Right. But also, department stores no longer had the cachet of selling brands, you know, like Esprit or Liz Claiborne or whatever. Because places like TJ Maxx and Nordstrom Rack were also selling these these brands at hot, low prices. So why would you go to Macy's or even Nordstrom, right? We started talking about that. I feel like there was a time where... Maybe my mom and like some of her friends were like, oh, I don't pay full price. Like that was became a thing. Like, you know, you always like, like who would pay full price for something when you can get it at a, a discount store or get a coupon or like on sales or like, <laughs> yeah, that was like a thing. Like, I feel like I heard people talking about it at the time. Oh, for sure. So I found an article from 1985 that was basically like, hey, you probably think these off price stores are a joke, but don't. Don't laugh because they're serious business, you know? And that article said by 1990, about 6% of clothes will be bought from off-price stores. So keep your eye on them. But actually, these days, it's more like three quarters or more of all clothes that are bought in the United States come from like TJ Maxx, Nordstrom Rack, Ross, Marshalls, those kinds of places. So, I mean, that's, you know, I've talked about this on the show before, but like, if most of our clothes are coming from TJ Maxx and Ross and Marshalls and whatnot, there's just this tiny little bit left of our wallets that we're going to be using to buy clothes that all these other places are fighting over. Of course, department stores are going to lose out. Of course. Right. And people aren't really looking for, I mean, like, it's funny. I was thinking recently, um, people aren't really looking for that, like, social thing anymore either because it's what they really like department stores kind of 
brought to the table. It's like the experience, you go in, you check out what's going on, what's new, get a soda, do a thing. You know, there's like this whole thing. And I, I feel like people don't really do that anymore because we can also search online. You know, it's like if I'm like, hey, I need a specific item, like I'm looking for running sneakers. Instead of going down to the department store and checking out what they have to offer, I'll just look online and order it there, especially when you need something specific and you're not just mm-hmm. like browsing for fun. Um, and I think that like that totally, that's one of the huge reasons why that that killed that sort of experience. I even sometimes, which is so crazy because I can't like my the way my brain has been wired now i'll walk into i do this in thrift stores sometimes too but i'll walk into any kind of retail store and immediately be like in my head like keyword search something i'll be like yeah. if I'm, looking, I'm looking for like a dress like oh i'm gonna check i'll be like dresses oversized dress you know <laughs> i'm like jenny you can't do that <laughs> and my brain no. up for a second will be like try to keyword search when i'm like IRL in a store. <laughs> like, oh my God. It's, it's just like true, so though. you know. It's yeah. true though. And I think that our ability to find just about anything we want online has made shopping in person feel so inefficient and like yes. disappointing. Yeah. I mean, like shoes are a great example. How many times in the pre e-commerce era did you go look to the mall to get a pair of shoes for something specific and find nothing that you liked yeah or they didn't have like your size were, or something exactly like, they oh. never had your size or you just didn't like them or they weren't comfortable god remember when we would have to go school like school clothes and school shoe shopping it was so stressful yeah and my grandma had this hang up that you couldn't go to like a Foot Locker or like a regular shoe store in the mall. You needed to go to the department store because she said they were the only places that knew how to measure your foot the right way. Yes. And I would be like, yeah, but couldn't we like, you know, find out my size here and then go buy something cool somewhere else? Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, no. And there was always like a guy who worked in the shoe department who looked like kind of bummed. You know, he was just like, trying to just like make some money for his family, like measuring your foot and and, like going to get shoes. And I guess they made commission on that stuff. Um, But it was always just sort of like a whole thing with like the shoes. Yeah. They bring out the one pair that you want to try on and two other pairs that you didn't ask for. Right. You have to try them all on and walk around and look at your foot in the weird foot mirror and all that stuff. Um, And I, I mean, like I remember specifically for my grandma, that service element of shoe shopping was really important. She couldn't understand why any of us would just like go buy a pair of shoes at Payless just off the shelf. Because how would we know if they were the right size? Right. You know, or the right shoe for us. Um, So, you know, department stores, they lose out to all the chain stores in the mall first. Then the chain stores in the mall and the department stores start losing out to, you know, TJ Maxx. And then... Amazon and Walmart swoop in to pick yeah. up a lot of our remaining clothing shopping money, leaving very little for any of these brands. They're all fighting over it. So, of course, department stores lost, along with a lot of other stores. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing I was thinking about a lot is how I remember growing up, like, we had a lot of different department store like local department stores and like if you went to another city to visit someone like a relative or something, there'd be different department stores there. And of course the reality is they all compare, they all sold the same stuff. Right. But it felt different. (laughs) Um, And then one day they just like all became Macy's and I was like, how did that happen? I, I need to know. Right. Yeah. So the, the Macy's story is so epic that I could literally make a whole episode about it. Like, there's people getting weird, rare diseases. Someone 
dies on the Titanic. I mean, there's like, it's all happening. There's a story about a guy buying a building just to stand in Macy's way of developing. And they just built the building around the building that he bought. And oh my God. what time there. frame is this happening? Like what's the uh, late 1800s, okay. early 1900s. So much drama. Uh, so Macy's began as a series of dry goods stores in the mid 1800s in New York City. And what they were doing is they were just kind of buying up more and more space around each store until they kind of turned into department stores. Mm. And so the flagship store moved up down to what we know as the Herald Square store at 34th Street and Broadway in 1902. And that is a situation in which there was a guy who hated Macy's. He resented that they were developing in the way that they were. And so he bought a building in the middle of that block in order to prevent them from expanding. So what Macy's did was buy all the other space on the block, build a huge building all around that building, kind of encasing it. And now there's like a Macy's sign that rests on top of that building. It's That building is still not owned by Macy's. Interesting. Um, interesting, right? So yeah. M- Macy's, people are loving Macy's, right? Over time, Macy's expanded stores throughout the New York area. And then it was like, well, now that we've done that, Let's set set our sights on national expansion by acquiring local department store chains. Basically, mm-hmm. if your local department store became a Macy's in the 80s or 90s, it was part of this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're gobbling up store after store from like World War II through to the 80s. And in the 80s, Macy's tried to buy federated department stores, which is another like massive corporate overlord of department stores at this point. Like they owned – Bloomingdale's, Filene's, lots of other chains of department stores. But they failed in their attempt to buy it because they lost to a Canadian company called Campo, which was owned by a real estate developer. And he was gobbling up every property, every company he could. He was eventually ousted from the company like a year or two later for just doing a bad job and maybe being psycho. I'm not sure. Um, But... Federated Department Stores was not to ever belong to Macy's. Instead, in 1992, Macy's declared bankruptcy, and it was acquired by Federated Department Stores. A twist. A twist. (laughs) Uh, And then it continued to gobble up even more companies, including the May Department Store chain in 2005, Lord & Taylor in 2006, although I think now Lord & Taylor belongs to someone else, like a venture capital company, something like that. There's been a lot of moving around of all these department stores. In 2006, lots of chains that Federated and Macy's had gobbled up over the years officially renamed as Macy's. So that was this was like the Macy's apocalypse or something. So mm. Filene's, Foley's, Hex, the Jones stores, Kaufman's, Marshall Fields, Meyer and Frank, Robinson's May, and Strawbridge's, among many other local department store chains. I mean, they just like they bought them all basically over the yeah. period of like 30 years. They all became Macy's all at once. But what this meant is that suddenly some malls were about to have two Macy's stores, maybe oh. even three. So all of those extra stores were liquidated. So then we start to mm. see these empty spaces in malls Closes, where yeah. anchor stores used to be. Yeah. In some of those situations, weird weird stores moved in. Like I know one mall out here, one of the anchor stores is a Burlington Coat Factory. Mm. Another one, the anchor store is a Walmart. Like you started to see weird stuff like that popping yeah. up. Or like in in the peak of, of Forever 21, which is past, 
Forever 21 was moving into a lot of these abandoned yeah. department stores and opening like mega stores. Right. You know, they probably regret that now. <laughs> um, so Macy's is massive. Suddenly every department store is Macy's. That's what it feels like. Uh, and then like, you know what? Department stores aren't doing well, right? And they haven't been for a long time. It's an interesting – it was an interesting decision to continue to buy more department store chains. They were really the doubling down. They're they were like, really doubling down on a, yeah. a bad idea, right? right? So, you know, they still managed to struggle on into the aughts because people still weren't shopping online that much. People right. didn't buy clothes from Amazon, you know, that kind of thing. But then, like, 2010 hits, and it's like, oh, shit. Everybody either buys stuff online or from like Walmart or something now. So Macy's had to close 52 stores. And also like, I mean, they didn't really innovate. Like that's the thing. It's like, you know, these older, and this is like a story that I think happens a lot where it's like, they didn't look to the future. You know what I mean? They could have like started, like launched like a really sick, like modern marketplace online. Or I mean, I don't know, but maybe that seems dated now even, but like, I don't know, like there was, there might've been some things they could have tried to like look forward and see how they can take this idea of the department store. But like, what does that mean in the future when we have places like Amazon and everyone's buying stuff online and like, what does a department store, and I'm sure people have these conversations, but I, you know, we did as consumers, we didn't really see like some new thing that they were bringing to the table or something interesting that could have changed that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Like every bit of press I read around this like apocalypse of department stores that began in 2010 addressed their reluctance to sell online and how they came too late to the game. They had bad websites. They didn't adapt to like the times in terms of the kind of brands and products that people wanted to buy. They didn't update their stores. There wasn't like a lot of brand discovery anymore because they didn't do anything new. Right. And I think that's a huge problem with like a lot of these like old timer establishments. And you can talk about this probably with like a bunch, I mean, a bunch of different things. I've seen like magazines that didn't do that and like certain like kind of pillars of this community of this whatever. Um, And they just didn't think forward. And they were probably some older, you know, old dudes that were like, ah, no one's going to do that. They're going to come and buy stuff in store or something. And like no one really changed. Yeah, it's true. It's like, think of, I mean, we're talking about Macy's right now, but like think about all of the other department stores that are like gone. Sears. Yeah. JC Penny. I don't right. know. Yeah. I mean yeah, well, they JC Penny actually it's funny, I kind of know this because when I was working at Alfie, I got approached by JC Penny to do some something. Stop. I don't know. They tried to reach out. Yeah, they were trying to reach out to like younger, cool brands and like bring in some stuff. And they really did make a, an effort to like kind of be like affordable and cool mm-hmm. sort of vibe. But I think that was just too late, you know? Yeah. I mean, I will say I have fond memories of JCPenney. There was a certain period for a couple years in the 90s where they definitely were trying. And you could literally buy Genco's at JCPenney. Yeah. Like, they, yeah. they tried. But, you know, it's just like yeah. they never – I will say, you know, like Nordstrom is still around, right? Nordstrom mm-hmm. is – most of Nordstrom's business – actually comes from Nordstrom Rack. If they didn't have Nordstrom Rack, I don't think Nordstrom would be around. But how Nordstrom stays relevant and when people talk about Nordstrom, they don't have the same sense of like sadness as they like when they talk about Macy's because Macy's is depressing, right? And those are like the more mainstream ones. I mean, I think that's what I think would happen, right? So stuff like Macy's, my, so growing up, my um, go-to department store, which I went with my mom like 5 million times was Lord and Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and so, but those were like kind of generally for 
the mass, like your average people, families, people working, you know, just like everyday American kind of vibe. So I think those all died out when there was stuff like Walmarts and, you know, online shopping and stuff like that, because you're getting your more like average goods, right? right? Yeah. But then I think the ones that have stayed around or how you have more like Barney's, you know, the really kind of niche high end, um, like I think it was Nordstrom too that started selling like recently. Not you know it wasn't. It, I think it was a was there like a brand uh, like a sector of Nordstrom that was like really sexy design stuff. Yeah, I think it was called yeah. And like I know Deuce and Deucen was on there, and like we sold stuff um, to them. I think it was Nordstrom. I'm pretty sure. Um, and they kind of did this like designer collection. So stuff that were more like niche and mm-hmm, high end, mm-hmm. maybe did okay. Cause people were like still looking for some of that. Cause I even talk about that now. I and mean, you and I have talked about this too. It's like, you know, because we've become, everything's online, you can buy direct from companies, small, small businesses, small makers, things like that. Sometimes it's hard to find those things though. Right, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, even still, I mean, we can search and stuff like that. Of course you can find stuff, but you know, like if you're somebody who really wants to buy like sustainable small brands, it's like, where do you go as like a quote unquote marketplace that can show you some of these places if you're not familiar with all of them, or you're just starting out to figure out what you like or so it is interesting, like, even though we've gotten away from this idea of like, you know, this big marketplace, if you will, of like a department store that shows you stuff. It's like at the same time, it's kind of like everything's so spread out and niche, it sometimes is hard to find. So it's like, it's interesting, like now what that looks like, if you're going to go to a place that is going to be is going to bring you different brands and, and have like a lifestyle vibe around it. Yeah, well, I think that is how Nordstrom has stayed relevant because they yeah. have been the most experimental. I mean, you go into their stores in general, it's kind of like whatever, especially like if it's like not in a big city. But they, for example, they really brought this idea of like concession, like shop in shops to the United States. Like I remember Topshop, for example, which they, even though Topshop has still gone out of business, has gone out of business, I think you can still buy Topshop in Nordstrom. And that was a really mm-hmm. big that was a big idea to say we're going to take this retailer who at that point was only in the UK and had very aspirational qualities to it even though it was fast fashion. It was still like very edgy and it was, you know, it was from it was from London, so it's cool, right? They started putting in these little like pop-up top shops in some of their stores and they expanded it. So that brought in young people or people who were more fashion oriented who otherwise right. wouldn't have been at Nordstrom. They have a Madewell shop and shop in a lot of their locations. They um did this thing. I don't think they're doing it anymore. It was called a pop-in, which were these curated pop-up shops online that would be curated by different you know, people in the design and fashion world, and yes. you'd find cool brands there. I mean, to be honest, I sort of love that idea. I mean, I don't know if I would do it literally like that, but like, you know, I mean, that's kind of one of my favorite things when you like interview someone and they're like, what's your like must-haves, which is kind of silly and corny sometimes, but I do like the idea of like, you know, some design figure or somebody that you love their style right and they're just like hey here are some great brands that i love that you might not have heard of before and you might align with that because you kind of like their style they have interesting choices it's sort of still a cool idea i think no i think so too i think i wish that they would continue to do that because more and more like there are so many like you're talking about makers and designers out there who have trouble reaching people because like in the sea of Instagram, how do you do that? Right. Um, much Welcome as, to my life. Right. Well, much <laughs> in the same way, like how in the early days of malls, no one knew what Banana Republic and stuff was. And so they needed the, the department store to draw them in. I think this is a way that like places like, you know, Nordstrom or other department stores can stay relevant is by 
you know, uplifting up all of these independent and mm-hmm. cool, interesting small businesses. Like, I think there's still a I place agree. for it. And I think, you know, it's not too late for Macy's. I know Macy's has been doing, I mean, I don't know if they're doing this now because like everything's out the window, but they were doing these little shops in their shop too that were a different theme every month. I remember I went one month and it was like rainbow and mm. they had products from all these small brands. Um, assorted by different colors of the rainbow and I was like this is really really cool you know like we need they have to bring that online presence though I mean you can't just do it in the the store unless they're doing like you know destination installation stuff where people are going to come I mean I hate to say this even but make it like grammable and all that shit that's a whole different thing I mean you have I I still think that like you have to have it a strong presence of that online so I could even just scroll through and be like oh shit like this is really cool maybe I would go see it in person if there's one downtown or something like that you know Um, but Macy's it's funny my um, my mother-in-law is like really into Macy's the first time I met her it's very like she's Thai but it's a very like Chinese thing where she like met me, gave me an envelope, a uh, red envelope, and it had a Macy's gift card in it. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's just like a very like specific thing. But so I've gone to a few Macy's with her, but their online presence is like, they first of all have sales every day. I get an email. I mean, I should just unsubscribe, but now I'm just sort of fascinated by it. Um, how many sales they have oh and stuff. My and they're God. just, their website sort of sucks. And I'm also kind of like, I'm the kind of person that, when something's too sale, like too discounted, I'm like, but is this good quality? Like you're getting to the point now where it's like bath towels are $6 each. I'm like, do I really want a $6 bath towel? Also like, how are they making any money? You know? So right. I just start questioning stuff like that. And for me personally, because of where I'm coming from, you know, I mean, I love a deal in some sense, but I also like, there's relatively good deals that make me feel like, oh, okay, this is a deal that's reasonable. And this is a deal that's not reasonable. And I don't know how this is like, logistically working here, which makes me wonder if I even want that thing, you know? Well, okay. So it's interesting that you talk about like, how do they make any money? Like specifically, let's talk about Macy's, right? There were memes that were going around for a while a few years ago that were basically like, if you've ever bought anything full price at Macy's, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself for your rest of your life, right? And (laughs) it's true because often you can go in there and like everything's on sale and then there's like some other coupon on top of that. And it's like confusing, which of course is how they get you to buy more stuff. But um, one thing that I've learned in my career is like the way that department stores manage their inventory and their like profitability is really, really weird and complicated. So like Mm. I'll try to explain this the best I can. But like if you're running a regular old store, right, like a regular boutique or a high corporate level like buying role like I've had, uh, you know, you buy stuff, right? You mark it up. If it doesn't sell, you mark it down. You just make less money off of that, right? And that's pretty standard, right? And like, you know, in the fast fashion era, more and more brands have realized, well, all brands, really, all the big brands have realized that you have to sell stuff on sale because people don't want to pay full price because they got deal madness. So now, you know, those, those brands will like literally... They'll say that dress is $60, but they know that it's only going to sell for $30. So they make sure that they're still making like a three times markup when it sells for $30, right? right? So we just get crappier stuff. Um, Department stores do this different thing where with the brands they work with, and this is one of the reasons you don't see like a lot of new brands in department stores because if you're a new brand, you cannot hang with a department store because – They'll buy stuff from you. If it doesn't sell, you either need to take it back or you need to literally write them a check 
to cover their money they're going to lose by marking it down. Oh. So if you're a department- That seems very old school. I know. And it's it like if you're a small brand, it can be devastating. Yeah, be totally. like, well, I sold you all those pans, and now you want me to write a check. And this is the thing. In most cases, that check you're writing isn't like, okay, so the pants were $100. I sold them to you for $50. Uh, so you would make $50 off of every full price pants you sold. It's not like right. they were saying, okay, we're going to mark them down to $40. So now you need to give us $10 to get up, make up that cost. No, 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 no. They want you to make up that $50 that they would have made selling it at full price. So if they sell those pants for $50, which is what they paid for them, you need to pay them an additional $50 for every pair they sell. Oh, so you need to make up for their yes, loss. Yes. I mean, that's a oh. really simplified version of it. And there's a lot more sure, nuance sure. and negotiation. And in most cases, you probably wouldn't end up giving them $50 for every pair of jeans, but you would give them something. And at the very least, it would be a significant discount off their next order. Well, they're looking at it like probably like you're Joe Schmo, nobody starting from the ground up or like a new brand or whatever. Like you're like, they're in, they're in the power. They have the power to, to bring this product to the masses, right? That's mm-hmm. how they look at it, I guess. Yeah. 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 And so brands who are like most of their business comes from department stores and that includes like someone like Nordstrom, the brands that sell to them are accustomed to dealing that way, which means of course, it's kind of a similar thing that's happening with fast fashion retailers who know that you're going to buy everything on sale. So they just make cheaper stuff. So they, no matter what, make a lot of money. Brands have to do that too. So yeah. that pair of pants might be $100 and they might have sold it to Macy's for $50 or Nordstrom or whatever. But they planned all along that they might have to give half that money back to Macy's. So they made the clothes cheaper in the first place. And it's interesting because like my career in as a buyer has been in, you know, these like so-called specialty retailers. (laughs) So ridiculous. Um, What a name. Um, And so we, we don't operate with markdown money. Right. And I remember specifically uh, way back at Mod Cloth, there was a brand. It's like such a department store staple. It's called BB Dakota. Um, that we would buy, we would buy from at Mod Cloth, and they did a huge order for us. But like something was something was off about it, like the size or the color, and so it didn't really sell. And they were like, "Can we give you markdown money?" Like they were just mm. like, "Please let us give you markdown money." And I was like, "Um, we've never like." done that before and they were like we'll give you ten thousand dollars or something and i was like that sounds pretty cool but then accounting reached out to me and was like um we just got this ten thousand dollar check from bb dakota do you want me to just send it to you and i was like no it's not for me okay (laughs) you mean i'll take it but (laughs) you have to deposit it or something and they were like we don't know how we've never done this before and i was like well neither have i (laughs) like i don't know So, I mean, everything gets so complicated, you know? It's like, part of me is like, when you start thinking about making products and, and like, I mean, even now as myself, who's like a small business owner, and my biggest problem really is like, is getting out to the right people, right? Mm-hmm. Getting eyes on me of people that are like, would be interested in what I'm making, whatever. And so like, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff too, where it's like, you know, you have brands and then this department store is buying the brands so they can bring it to the people and, you know, and how that all changes. It's just like, it gets really complicated. And, and you know, I mean, part of me is like, I love that this, like, you know, being, bringing things online, you can kind of go directly to who's making a lot of times, like mm-hmm. what you're looking for, which is awesome. But finding them sometimes can be tricky. So it's, it's, this is like an interesting, you know, structure and how that moves forward in like in a different world. I know. I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately because I've been working on all these episodes about Etsy and eBay and 
more right. and more big brands have been reaching out to different people in my friend circle about partnerships and stuff like that. And just like talking through like, what do you do as a small maker to not to like grow your business without getting fucked over? Right? right. It's really, really hard. That's why so many people stay with Etsy or eBay or whatever, even though yeah. like they're cutting into their profits. It's not very fair. They kind of have a monopoly on those businesses. So like you have to accept any increase in fees or any other nonsense policies that they put out there, even if they like hurt your business, because at least you get that exposure. Right. Yeah. And I'm just still like, how. How is there a way we can create like a nonprofit co-op where everyone sells their stuff online? And, you know, obviously there will be fees attached to it to pay the people who maintain sure. the website and whatever else. But like it wouldn't be like we're going to make a billion dollars in the next two years, which is what these kind of co- the promises that these companies right. will will sell, you know, to like their investors. Like that's where how Etsy goes awry. That's how eBay goes awry. I mean, honestly, like. There was a time probably where Macy's was making crazy promises like that. And that's how they were able to bring in all this money and buy all these department stores, you know? Yep. It's like. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think there's something to be said for it. I think you and I have talked about that a little bit. I would love like, I keep using the word marketplace because it's just like, I don't know, an easy thing for me to like describe it sort of. But like. You know, I mean, I guess in, in some ways, kind of like a department store, but not really. But like this central place where you can go to that maybe has like an overall like themed vibe of like, you know, just style wise or just like super interesting stuff or sustainable or kind of whatever, you know, thing that kind of might draw you into like a group of brands. But like having a place where, you know, people can come and look and, and discover other brands, but also keeping it like true to like the fact that like if you had that place like say you, you know i decided to launch like a marketplace obviously you would need to get paid right it's like you're doing a service and i think that's totally legit i mean i don't think that there's going to be like as a small business you know that those are kind of fees that you're going to have to deal with like marketing or you know uh doing stuff like that where you're, you're paying somebody to host this thing and bring people to it you know mm-hmm. so i think that that's fine but there does become a point where that can get a little out of control, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of room for that. I mean, I'm curious to see how that moves forward. And like, if there is somebody who really picks up that, cause I used to, when I worked at Alfie, I would get, I would get, um, you know, contacted by a lot of like marketplaces, like Lulu and Georgia and like stuff like that. And, you know, I never really like more furniture wise. I think there's some stuff Mm -hmm. like that, but I haven't really found one that I thought was interesting for clothes or like, wearables. Yeah, no, me um, neither. Me neither. I was taught like at the end of last year, I talked on one of the episodes about how like that was an idea I had, something I wanted to work on this year was like creating yeah. a marketplace like that. And I was bombarded with messages from people who were like, "Oh, my friend's already doing that or this or that." So I was like, "Okay, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be like out here stealing people's ideas." But then I haven't seen anything emerge. So Yeah, I haven't either. So if you're out there and you and you, you have so you've you seen something like that, please let us know. Cause I'm curious, like who's doing sort of interesting gathering of brands that would be, I don't know, that's something that we would be into yeah. and, and, like, and cool. seeing like, and like, you know, you could buy stuff yeah. from all these small makers and know that they're decent people and, you know, like they have the best, the best intentions and, you know, they're trying to bet their hardest right. to like, be environmentally and socially responsible. Like there are some collectives for like 
sustainable fashion and whatnot, but they're not, it's not the same thing either. It's still mm-hmm. much larger scale brands. Yeah. And I think right now it leaves a lot of makers with like either Etsy or like trying to make it on their own on their website. And it's really, really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. And it's also interesting too, because I feel like there's a, and I would love to have a little bit of a vetted process with that too, where you know that like, okay, this is a real, cause sometimes, I mean, I've had friends, multiple people tell me lately that have gotten scammed too, oh, no <laughs> which is doubt. also a whole other thing. No doubt. But like, you know, vetted people, not only just to know that they're a legit business, but like, you know, also people who make quality stuff, you know, cause there are a lot of young makers out there who are, you know, just dabbling and like trying to make things and seeing how it turns out. And like, that's cool. And there's a place for you in the world. But I also don't know if I'm like, necessarily always looking for that. Like I, it's like this little sort of sweet spot of like small businesses that are like professional, kind of have their shit together. They're growing, they make quality things. They have like a sense of like, you know, ethics about how they're doing this. Um, you know, and and this having a little bit of vetting would be nice too. So you kind of like, kind of weed through all the stuff and you're like, is this a real business or is this like someone who's just like in college doing this for fun on the side, which is totally cool. But you know, I don't know, just like gathering people in a different way um, would be interesting. I think think. so too. I mean, I'm still thinking about this. Like, honestly, if I don't see anything like this emerge by the end of this year, I'm going to make it happen next year. And also there's, there's, there can be multiples. You know what I'm saying? Oh, totally. totally. This is not like, also, so if someone's doing this, this is not like the only person who ever had this idea. I mean, this is a pretty, we're talking about department stores. I mean, in some sense, I mean, people have been talking about this forever. It's not like, but I do think in the, you know, in this time, as we shift in the way that we shop and things, um, there's room for that. There might, you know, there might, might be one online, but you're like, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We would kind of right, want something right. more like this or whatever. So there's yeah. there's room there, I think. For no, us. I think it'd be really cool. I mean, I my head is already spinning with this idea of it being sort of like a co-op. Mm-hmm. And so everybody who sells on that platform also gets a buy-in on who gets to sell on the platform. So like, mm-hmm. every, you know, you have to have a majority approval to bring in new brands and stuff. That's I fair. think that's good too, because it creates a sense of community mm-hmm. um, and ownership and, you know, like once again, people would there would obviously be fees and stuff attached to it, but yeah. like that money would just be for marketing and paying all the staff. For, that's like, totally you know. reasonable. I mean, yeah, the totally. reality and people get so mad when they're like, I mean, talking about Instagram even with like, you know, the end of the day, I mean, Instagram is a free app. Okay. And like I as a business owner, I wouldn't probably not I would probably be okay with paying a small monthly fee to be a business owner on Instagram if things were to change a little bit on how they yeah. presented yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those people are like, uh, you know, and, and I'm, it, it is frustrating when you're on this like free app and like, that's where we kind of communicate and like, you know, that that's sort of a place where we gather. And at the same time, they change things and make it crazy and harder for us or whatever, which is fine. But it's also like, it's a free app. We have to figure out how to <laughs> move forward in a way that like, we as a business owner may have to pay a small fee for something. And I think I personally think that's okay if it's working for us and it's the right structure and it's the right, you know, kind of thing that's like will be fair for all of us you know totally i mean it's like as it is right now it's just not fair no like it's it's just like not the right platform because it comes from a really different place in terms of both like ethics and its own model its own financial model and there's a lot of pressure on instagram right now to make up a lot of revenue because facebook is not making a lot of money i mean facebook is just so it's fallen so far out of favor, depending yeah. on who your customer is, you know? Right. And so I, 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 you know, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with Instagram. I think yeah. we all rely on it a lot. I know I do for reaching people. Otherwise, literally no one would know who I am at all. Yeah, and me too. So I'm grateful much. for for Facebook, I mean, for Instagram. Yeah, me too. Um, well, you know, 
Macy's, we went on a really long tangent, but like a really important (laughs) one, actually. Um, I think, I think it kind of talks about like, like everything we discussed kind of mirrors what has happened with department stores versus specialty stores. And now they're both kind of like off and not very popular anymore. Uh, Macy's closed 52 stores in 2010. It closed 5% of its stores in 2016. It closed 30 stores in 2020, 45 this year. There's a goal of closing 125 stores by 2023. They're laying off people right and left. They yeah. cut 2,000 corporate jobs last year. I mean, it's like – I feel like I look at Macy's and I see all of these other like bad the startups, you know, and how they – got greedy and failed too. Yeah. Or maybe they haven't failed yet, but they certainly have their customers or sellers feel betrayed, you yeah, know? Definitely. Um, this is like Macy's was like the original girl boss or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh it's 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 just like what a weird time. And then okay, so like you mentioned Lord and Taylor, mm-hmm. which uh a few years ago, Latote. Do you know what Latote is? I don't think so. Uh it's a clothing rental service. Um, I first became aware of it because my sister Kelly used it for a long time. You know, you pay a membership fee and every month you get like, I don't know, five, six right. items and you keep them for a month. You can keep them and pay for them or send them back. Um, and Latote was doing really well at this time. Like the, I remember this period because it was right around the time I took my job with a rental company, a different rental company. Mm-hmm. And this was like the entire fashion industry was like rentals, the future. Right. Don't worry about the retail apocalypse. It's all about rental. And so like Ann Taylor was doing rental and New York and company was doing rental. Like anyone, anyone. So Latote had this big inflated valuation Probably there was a time when Macy's had that too, right? And so Latote was able to get the financing to buy Lord and Taylor. And it was always a really confusing decision to me, but I guess the conceit there was that you could then, one, Latote could rent out Lord and Taylor clothing, right? right? And you could go to a Lord and Taylor to like drop off your Latote or try things on. I don't think that ever came to fruition because then. Latote declared bankruptcy. What year was this, roughly? Uh, like Latote declared bankruptcy in 2020. Okay, so this I, is I relatively recent. Yes, it's yeah. pretty recent. I want to say Latote bought Lord and Taylor in 2018 or 2019. Um, the other thing that's going on with Latote uh, is that Latote is suing Urban Outfitters. Oh, for stealing its intellectual property. Shocker. And launching newly because basically the background story there is that uh, Latote approached Urban Outfitters about buying them because the, and this is pre Latote buys Lord and Taylor right, this right. Is like a couple years before that so Latote approached Urban Outfitters about buying them and they were interested because like any retailer at this point is like what are other ways we can save our business because people are just less interested in a lot of these like traditional retailers and. At this point, there was already a lot of whispering that rental was the future. There were only a few people doing it out there. It was like Latote and Rent the Runway for the most part. So, you know, Urban puts together a team of people to go out to Latote and learn all about it, do the due diligence, which is what you would do when you were going to buy any company. And, you know, obviously I'm not in the room when any of this has happened. This is just based on what I've read. Latote was under the impression that Urban Outfitters was going to buy them. Like the team spent – a significant amount of time out in, I want to say San Francisco, 
in the Latote offices doing the due diligence, learning how they did, did things and all this stuff. The team leaves and goes back to, you know, Urban Outfitters headquarters and Latote's under this impression that the deal is about to be signed. Mm-hmm. What happens is Urban Outfitters says no. Six months, a year later, they start their own rental service newly. So Latote sued them. They were basically like, you stole all of our systems, operations, processes, our whole model. Um, I know that Urban tried to get the case dismissed, but this year a judge, just a couple months ago, a judge here in Pennsylvania was like, nope, keep going. This is a real case. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But at the same time, Latote is in bankruptcy right now. I mean, they're still operating, but like they're in a weird time financially. They probably should not have bought Lord & Taylor. I'm sure they are regretting that. Yeah, I feel like too, like I'm sure this is not Urban's first lawsuit. (laughs) I mean, I know many, even just small artists who have been completely like literally just ripped off by them. Um, I mean, anyone, you know, especially in the mid two thousands, I like, just oh, everyone was like, no, don't, don't do like, cause you'd be like, you know, like going back to what you were saying too, with like these department stores or big retail, like sort of holding the power and you as like a small brand thinking like, Oh, I got to do this because this is going to be great. It's going to put me on the map. But what they do is they'll just like buy a little bit of it and then they don't renew with you and they just make them themselves. Um, things yeah. like that. And it's just like, oof, it's brutal. So I'm sure this is not their first uh, loss of rodeo. <laughs> that idea, I mean, I think that's something really important to point out, which I haven't really, I don't think I've talked about in the show before. And I, yesterday I did an Instagram live about. I caught a little bit of that. Yeah. That's brands sounds, reaching yeah. out yeah, about partnerships. So that's something that I didn't mention. And I wish I could go back time, back in time and add that, that like often if you're a small brand and a big retailer comes to you and wants to buy your line and they actually like, goes forward as planned, you get paid on time, the product sells, it's really good, oftentimes they're going to stop ordering from you and start making it themselves. And that is like the name of the game. I've worked everywhere I've worked. That is exactly what happens. And so there is a short lifespan on any partnership you're going to have with any of those brands. And there's a ceiling on how much it's going to do for you. And I think that's really important. And I'm Mad at myself for not remembering that, but I can think of like a hundreds of times in my career where I have seen this happen. It's happened with small brands and it's happened with medium-sized brands. Yep. Um, those retailers don't owe you shit. That's how they look at it because you are never going to have enough money to take them to court. Latote right. apparently is the only company that can hold a big yeah. retailer accountable. <laughs> I'm curious to see how that pans out. I have to, I'll have to keep that I know. on the lookout. I, I, I mean, if you read, I think there's like a good, it's either the business of fashion or the fashion law had a really good write-up about it that I I read recently about the most recent update with the case. And I mean, it sounds like a very, very strong case. Mm, Um, I don't know what that means happens. Like I, that's the thing. Like what does like urban outfitters have to write a check to Latote if they lose? Like, I I, I don't know what happens, you know? Um, But it seems like a very strong case. Interesting. Yeah. But for every Latote actually takes someone to court and holds them accountable, there are hundreds and hundreds of artists and brands who have been scammed by other big brands who can't. I mean, lawyers are expensive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, it sucks. Someone was messaging me today and they were like, what do you do if Sheen steals your ideas? And I'm like, well, not much. You know, like the <laughs> yeah. best you can do is just blow it up all over the internet and hope that gets you new customers. Yeah. 
That's like, it. Tuesday because- Bassin, that was like a one, it probably like put her on the map, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. I mean, not really. I mean, she was doing stuff before, but you know, just like really like brought attention to that, and she had like a big voice, and people were like, "Oh shit!" When Zara just basically started taking her ideas and making them themselves, like pins and things, and oh, for sure. I mean, that's one of the best things about social media is yeah. like you get to hear these stories because those stories would have no one would know them if this yeah. happened in like two thousand. And I can like assure Daya you, Prada and stuff are there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In two thousand and even two thousand ten. Plenty of retailers were stealing designs and ideas right and left, but it was just harder to get the information out there. Yeah. So I, at least, you know, Instagram has its drawbacks, but also has many positive yeah, attributes. Of course. Of course. <laughs> There's always a mixed bag, you know. <laughs> this Saturday only, 8 a.m. to midnight, it's the one day sale at May Company for 16 hours only. Save 25% on every sweater for Mrs. and Juniors. Every corded make jacket is 60% off. Save 55 to 65% on a collection of pearls and 14 karat gold. Members only basic jackets are just $36.98 and save 33% on toys and all Trematry shop items. 16 hours of savings you can't afford to miss. The one day sale this Saturday only, 8 a.m. to midnight at May Company. This is it, the fashion excitement for Fall 85. The tones, the textures, the total look. It's Liz Claiborne, and you'll find it at Boston Store. Colors the story, and Claiborne is vibrant. She's Liz Sport, making a splash this fall in a weekend collection that's relaxed and easy. Or discover Liz Claiborne in Liz Wear, a casual collection that's big news this fall. Colorful, spirited, and ready for fun. Claiborne also redefines your career look this fall with Liz Spectator. Lustrous knits in a palette of bold, rich colors. Sumptuous fabrics and softly draped silhouettes and classic winter whites and navies of understated elegance. It's a relaxed attitude that means beautiful business. A perfect sense of style, impeccably tailored and totally feminine. Liz Sport, Liz Wear, and Liz Spectator. Three distinctive collections that reflect Liz Claiborne for Fall 85. And you'll find them all at Boston Store. Estee Lauder Skin Care Estee Lauder Makeup Estee Lauder Fragrance All in our free gift to you It's a special collection filled with five makeup, fragrance and skin care products Including Night Repair and Luscious Cream Mascara It's your bonus with any Estee Lauder purchase of $12.50 or more Estee Lauder, live in our world This gift is yours through February 18th at Gayfers well, do you have any exciting department story? Stories? I mean, this one was sort of a dark one, but I did, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about like department store stuff and I, you know, I realized I was like, God, I did spend a lot of time as we've been talking about, like in department stores growing up, it was like back to school clothes, proms, mm-hmm. you know, again, fights with my mom there, going with oh, girlfriends. So like, I just remember yeah. like, I was thinking about the feeling of being in a department store, just like. And it actually makes me feel like weird now because it was, there was so much like drama that happened in my life <laughs> that happened at a department store. You know, it was just like fight with my mom and she's like, well, I'll meet you at the car. You know, it's like that kind of shit. I feel like went down a lot. Um, but I did, I did have some serious drama that went down when I was 15. Um, I was going through a bit of a rough patch in my life, I think. And I started stealing. Um, just not really like stealing, mm. but like I did my first, like, I'm going to try to steal something. And I had gone to the mall, uh, gone to one of the apartments where I think it might've been JC Penny, but I don't remember which brand it was. Um, and they, I went in, I think I was by myself and I just like put on a jacket and I was just like, Oh, 
I'm going to walk. I didn't even think about it. It wasn't like I was planning. I just was like, I'm going to walk out with this jacket. Walked out with a jacket and got away with it. And I was like, oh my God. And I was kind of like, you know, I, I was generally a good kid to be quite honest, but I, you know, I just had this like moment stole the jacket so then i told all my friends i was like oh my god like i took this jacket so cool like (laughs) so stupid um but we went back the next weekend and it was me and like four of my girlfriends and we were in like a department store um dressing room and the bras and panties like lingerie section putting on all this stuff so we basically just put on a ton of bras and panties making total scene i mean anyone who was working there any sales associate would have been like uh, what the fuck are these girls doing? It was just ridiculous. <laughs> we were so obvious and like yeah. stupid. Like we thought we were being cool and we were not. It was just a mess. So we all put on some clothes, you know, under our stuff and went to go walk out. And I had one girlfriend who didn't participate because sh- her parents owned retail stores and she felt weird about it, which I totally get. I was like, good for you. It was smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we were walking out, I had a hand on my shoulder and it was just like, mall security like come with me and i was like oh fuck. and my friend was like why didn't you run i was like i'm gonna run like where am i gonna go um anyway so i got i got pulled to the back room of the department store you know like when you don't see all those back tunnel like you know offices and stuff like that so we got pulled in there and she was like and i was the one who really brought down the whole crew because she was like i was like oh i'm sorry we'll just give it back like we're just being idiots and she was like yeah but i saw you in here last week and i was like damn it. So I was the one, the bad seed that really screwed <laughs> uh, everybody because they had seen me last week. Cause it wasn't like, Oh, we've never done this before. We're just big dumb idiots. Like, I'm so sorry. We'll never do it again. It was like, she was like, yeah, but she was in here last week. And I was like, fuck. So I was the, you know, the bad child who got everyone in trouble. So they took us, they put us in a car, went to the police department. I probably, <gasps> I think I blacked out. Cause God, I, don't I would have pooped my pants. Yeah. This it was like very really scary. And yeah. as I have mentioned on the podcast before, I mean, I had a very, intense mother you know what I mean like this was not like a mother who'd be like why did you do that let's talk about it it was like shit was gonna go down so I got in a police car it was three of us because my one friend didn't get arrested because she wasn't she was outside the dressing room they they knew that she wasn't really a part of it went down to the Trumbull police department got went into one of those you know rooms like waiting called my dad my dad came down and I'll never forget. I like walked. And my dad's like a pretty chill guy. I mean, he's, you know, he can get like pissy if you're really an asshole, but pretty much he's, you know, he's, it's a pretty re- reasonable person. And he was, I was like crying. I was like, dad, oh my God. And he was like, save the tears, get on the phone right now, call these two friends of yours and tell them not to say a word about this because I could get kicked out of school. Um, I went to private school. And so if they found out I was arrested, I could have been kicked out of school and it would have been a huge disaster. So call my two girlfriends. We had a whole plan. We're not going to talk about it. You know, ever, I didn't even ask if I was grounded. I was just like, I am not allowed out of my room for any, any the foreseeable future. But luckily, um, I mean, we were also 15, you know, we weren't hurting anybody. Like we definitely were idiots and, you know, being stupid. But, um, one of the girlfriends, one of my girls that I got caught with, her dad was a cop in a different town. So he called the police department and was like, Hey, you know, they're young girls, they're 15, they know they've messed up, we're gonna, you know, so they didn't, like, press any charges or anything like that. I think the mall security was just, like, whatever, they just, you know. Um, So we didn't have any, like, charges pressed against us, which was great, because I didn't have to deal with that part of it. Um, But yeah, I had a real, my mom wasn't home when I, my dad had gotten the call to come down to the police department. So when I got home, (laughs) 
shit got real dark. Um, my mom was like, where have you guys been? And my dad was like, well, just had to pick up your daughter from the police station. And it was like all hell broke loose. Um, I had basically had to like run up into my room and like lock myself into my, in my room. So it didn't go down and get worse. Um, uh-huh. and it was, I'll spare everyone the dark details, but yeah, it was not great. The next morning was not great. Probably one of the worst mornings of my life. Um, and yeah, and so that was my big drama. It ended up being okay, you know, um, whatever, generally speaking, like I didn't, you know, my parents were, my mom was crazy. But other than that, like, I didn't get a, you know, they didn't press any charges. I didn't get kicked out of school. And I've never stolen again. Like I like was definitely like scared straight. Um, yeah, but it was yeah. one of those experiences you like almost like leave your body because you're like, oh my God. Oh, I mean, I, <laughs> I was like frightened listening to this story. Yeah. Like, was, I have goosebumps. I was chilled. Yeah. It was, it I, was a, tr- it was a tough one. I, Never did the shoplifting, although I had tons of friends who did because my mom would have, like, literally murdered me. Yeah. Like, my mom was super crazy and yeah. was, like, kind of waiting for me to, to get in trouble yeah. so I could prove that I was the monster right. that she assumed I was. But one of my friends went through a really, really wild shoplifting phase. I want to say, like, ninth grade. And I remember at her peak, she stole an entire clinic tester like module from the clinic counter you know with like lipsticks and eyeshadows and everything in it i don't know how she got it out of the mall that's a pretty like high level steal yeah yeah i I was like like, yeah i mean i didn't say this to her face but i was like two other friends i was like i'm really concerned like she's gonna end up in prison because like you can't just go steal from the like a whole tester station from like the makeup counter like you're asking for it at this point like you're gonna get called like you're getting too bold fortunately then she stopped I don't know if maybe she got caught and we didn't like hear about it but uh I remember her being like what you guys don't want any of these lipsticks or eyeshadows and we were like no they're like testers (laughs) she was like yeah there's that all mine (laughs) and we were like good luck like having that in your bedroom and your parents not noticing (laughs) right I mean there's a different that's why I was thinking for us it was definitely like you know, I think I didn't even think about it as me being bad. I was just like, you kind of like checked out. And I just was like, oh, I'm going to put this on. You know, I wasn't thinking about consequences. I was just like, ooh, this no. is kind of weird I mean, and exciting. You weren't hurting anybody. You were just like, yeah. Oh, okay. And then, you know, I got, th- I'm actually kind of grateful that I got, in some ways, I got arrested because it like, it just it was a wake up call. I was like, you can't do this. This is not chill. Like, get your skips together. You know what I mean? Like, and I was like, yeah. oh, right. Okay. And I, cause I didn't even think about it. I was just like a dumb kid, like acting out and like, you know, excited oh, to do something totally. cool and weird, you know? Totally. I mean, there's like so much psychology around shoplifting, especially when you become an adult. Right. I think often when you're a kid, you just like have no concept of the consequences. Right. Um, but I've definitely had friends who have admitted to me like, yeah, I'm like 35 years old and I have a shoplifting problem. Yeah. You know? I mean, plot twist. I've dealt with that with my mo- own mother. You know. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I. So I've been. I've done a lot of research about like actually um, people who are, I guess, kleptomaniacs or whatever they call them. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a real thing? I don't know if that's like a s- s- clinical diagnosis, but people who steal <laughs> for not for necessity because stealing for necessity is a whole other thing. Um, but people who steal like that do not need the things that they steal. It's just like more of like, I don't know, I don't call it sport or whatever, a compulsion. Um, it's actually kind of rare, which I was sort of surprised about. Uh, I mean, it obviously exists because people, but it's not as common as you think. People that are stealing mostly are stealing for necessity, I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's like, there's like whole compulsiveness to it. And, and I read a little bit about, I mean, it's really kind of, interesting uh, i don't know if that's the right word but um 
about like why people do that and the reasons behind it, the psychology behind it. Um, yeah. So interesting. I did have, uh, one boyfriend who I've talked about in the department who was like a major, like a definitely a kleptomaniac, like just couldn't stop stealing and stole all day, every day, everywhere he went. Like if we went out for lunch, he would just steal all the condiments yeah. You know, like he stole a trash can from a restaurant bathroom. <laughs> but like, one why? Day. You need the trash can? You know what I mean? That's a thing. It's I like, know. I know. When it comes down I, to that, it's like, like my mom will do that too. Even my, like, I have family members that were like old, like my old Greek side, like my old, like my great aunts. And they would like, at the, at the restaurant, it's like, take the, the, you know, biscuits and wrap them up, put it in their pocket or their, I'm like, you don't need to do that. Like, why? And I think yeah. it's also a generational thing. Like when, if you live through the depression, people like, there's always, even though you have things now, you still have this feeling like you're going to lose everything and you want to like hoard it up and make sure you're, you know, so you can survive. And like, there's must be some like PTSD from that kind of stuff. I don't know. I feel like I, I'm going to be honest. I feel like I'm turning into a depression era Nana. The last <laughs> really? year and a half has really put me in that headspace. Yeah, where I'm mean, always like, I better drink every last drop of this LaCroix because it might be my last, you know, like, <laughs> like I just am I'm like, not so, laughing, but it's, I'm like, you know, I, <laughs> I found myself, I mean, first off, like I, you know, hate waste from like an environmental perspective. Too, yeah. Like, Last summer specifically, I remember Dylan and Dustin would constantly leave last like half drank cans of seltzer all over the house. And mm. I would just go around and drink them all, even though they were flat and warm because I didn't <laughs> want them to be wasted. Yeah. And like I just uh, uh I can I can see myself I constantly am like well, we better enjoy the good times while they last because they're not here much longer. And I'm like, We're all Whoa. turning into depression era nanas. Yeah. I know. I'm like, where did I get this from? <laughs> I with you on the waste. Like even my partner's always like, well, I know you don't like, cause I like with food and stuff, I try not to make too much or like I'll freeze stuff. So I don't want to throw stuff in the trash. I do feel like right. there's that waste element for me, but I also feel like, yeah, I mean, there, I, I think that like for me coming from a household there, it was like, it was very clean. There was no, when I say hoardery, it wasn't like dirty hoardery. It was just like stockpile, like, like, like the end of the world. Like we would have like, I mean, still to this day, you can have like 15 rolls of paper towels in the house. Uh, you know, three cases of soda, two cases of seltzer. And I think it's a little bit of a suburban thing. Like you can just like stock it up in your basement or your you know mm-hmm, garage. Mm-hmm. But I like hated that as a kid. Cause like we would go to the store and get a bunch of, st- and I'm like, can't we get like two bottles of soda? Why do we have to get eight? You know, because yeah, they're on crazy. sale. We got to get them in. And it's like, so I think I there's partially, I don't like wasting just on an environmental tip. But also there's part of me that's just like, I like to keep it tight and like not minimal. I like to feel like I have things, but like, you know, just not over buying. I, I feel like it, it weighs me down to have all these things that I have to like then manage and deal with, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a little bit of that. I just kind of like, like to keep it tight and not overly indulgent in all these things that I don't really necessarily need. Well, wait till you move to, out of the city. Then you're going to be like, I'll get the biggest package of toilet paper. That's where it starts. You're I like, know, oh my God, I know. I'm my like, toilet paper for six months. That was great. We should do that kind of thing more often. I mean, and then you're like, it, listen, I get it. Like, but I just would like, I just, I think it was more like as a kid, I was always embarrassed. Like when we'd check out and we'd have literally, my mom was, there'd be like a soda hurt that she like would be on sale. So she would buy 20 of them. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. Yeah. like, why do we? One of my stepfathers was like that. Oh my just, gosh, it drives yeah. me crazy. But I have to say, even pandemic times, because we couldn't go out, especially in the beginning when we were really tight about going out, you know, I was like, well, we, ha- I don't, I don't want to ever feel like we don't have like 
food and drinks and things in the house. So we were definitely buying like more bulk, you know, suburban style, like seltzers and stuff like that. So now I've become accustomed to that a little bit. So I like to have like a plethora of like the basics yeah. that I like around. No, that's, that's interesting because we obviously had to do the same thing, especially like in Philly for most of the pandemic, I mean, it's still happening, so I can't speak to it now. But for, like, the times when we were still living in Philly, the grocery stores in the city just didn't – they didn't have much, Yeah, you know? And so we we would start going over the bridge to Jersey every few weeks. You know, it would be, like, our one big trip, and we would stock up on, like, you know, we needed three meals a day and, like, anything we were going to drink or need to clean or feed the animals or anything. So it was, like – it would be this, like, oh, my God, our whole car is filled to, like, this roof – yeah. with stuff. And it felt really uncomfortable for me to have all that stuff in my house. Like yeah. I was like, I feel like I'm surrounded by stuff. Like it would be a relief when we were almost out of things because I felt yeah. like the space had returned. Yeah. But it's like we had to do that. And I do think that like I have reached that stage now where I've developed a comfort with it. Yeah. And it does concern me where I'm right. like, we only have one case of LaCroix left. What's going to happen? I'm so thirsty, right. you know, and like just things like that. Like we only have one bag of cat litter. What if we run out and there's no more? And Dustin will be like, there'll be more. Yeah. There'll be more cat litter. It'll be okay. And I'm like, but there wasn't that one time. You know, like, what are we going to do? We're going to put the cats outside. What are we going to do? You know? Well, I had one moment in the early pandemic about that where I just, it was like the first, one and only day, like kind of early on that I had a, oh my God, there's not going to be deliveries of food to, bro-, especially in, in like city area, you know, where I'm like, everyone's going to buy up all this. So I bought like cans of beans and stuff, you know, so I had my one day panic and then I like relaxed. I mean, David even bought a bidet. Because he was like, I'm not messing with this TP bullshit. Oh, we we have one too because he, of the pandemic. He wanted it. I mean, you know, when we travel through South Sea, he sort of like likes the efficiency of that. And I actually agree. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's cool, you know. Um, but so we like got that. But like now I've like settled down a little bit and I'm like, okay, like it's going to be okay. I'm not, it's not like end of the world, like whatever. But I also do think that like, especially if you have room for it, which I barely do now, but especially if we moved or something, you know, having like some seltzers and like basics that you use often, I think that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's like unhealthy, like to buy like two cases of seltzer to have in the house or if you have someone over, I just like seltzer. So like, I'm going to drink that. That stuff is fine. I'm just saying stuff that you don't really need that you're buying on sale was like a thing that my mom did a lot. Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. you know, like, and she's still, she's like very, a very tidy collector slash hoarder where she'll take like bags from the store. Like, why? Why do you need that many bags? You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, like grocery bags, stuff like that, that, yeah. it, that feels more compulsive. And it's not about, oh, you know what? I'm actually going to really use these things because she'll forget she has them. And then I'll find them like four years later, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, I mean, I definitely have conversations with Justin like that when we're out in the wild where I'm like, no, that's yeah. not coming home. Yeah. What are you going to, I like, we, the game is like, what are you going to do with that? Yes. And if you know. will use okay. it, then okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Some, yeah. some collectors and people are like, if he's into like, mu- like David's into like music stuff or bird. I'm like, okay. If you're going to actually use this thing, that's totally fine to bring it, especially when thrifting, because everything can be cheap and you're just like, sure. Get it if all. we're not going to yeah. use it or we don't have a place for it, I'm just like, I have to be more mindful of what I bring in. Yeah, totally. But. Totally. Um, well, do you have anything else to say about department stores? I will just say one little side hot tip. Um, not really a hot tip, but if you're looking for a little, um, department store visual, like porn or whatever you want to call it, um, Mad Men had that great couple episodes where, um, 
uh, yeah. Don Draper like kind of has a moment with this woman who runs a department store in Manhattan. And they said, I was actually checking it out and they, it was a debate whether it was, it was in the show, it was called Mencken's department store. Yeah. Um, and it was like that heyday of the department store in Manhattan, you know, like where you come and it was glamorous and sexy and whatever. And so there was a debate what, online whether it was supposed to be a Bergdorf Goodman or a Henry Bendel. And people were like, I think it was a Henry Bendel, just kind of more of the vibe. But people were chatting about, you know, whether what, what it was supposed to represent. But if you're looking for a little like fun visual on like the heyday of department stores, that would be a good couple episodes to check out. Uh, I, I forget what season it is, but you can just Google it. It's the um, Mencken's department store. Yeah, I think it's really early on. I think it might be in the first season. First even. or second. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, oh. when Dustin and I got married, I found out that he'd never watched Mad Men. Oh. He's like, I don't really like when I hear something's popular, I just assume I don't like it, which is like <laughs> right. the most hipster thing you could ever say. <laughs> and we were in Japan and like the only things available on Netflix were basically things not in English and Mad Men. And I was like, oh my God, this is a great opportunity for you to watch Mad Men. And so yeah. we've rewatched it in the past few years. Did he like and it? yeah, he loved it. Yeah. I was like, I told you so. Same thing with um, oh my God, Breaking Bad. He'd never watched that either. Right. And we watched that last summer and he was like, okay. I mean, Mad really Men good. is just whether you liked it or thought I have I've heard people say, oh, it's boring or whatever. I'm like, okay, you didn't get it, but whatever. Um, but if just on a visual tip, if you're a, like a decade nerd or into anything like that, like they just, cr- the art department crushed that show. It was just oh, like, yeah. I mean, down to like, I've read like, you know, articles and stuff about it and how like the, the hair and makeup people like had the women on the show, like kind of doing their own, they would teach them how to do their own hair. So it looked more real and like their nails and everything, like all the details oh, wow. about like products, like they had people like researching the products and like creating the lucky strike boxes that like, he used to use for the cigarettes. And like, it was just such a like high level, amazing, like art production. So just on that tip alone, if you're into that sort of thing, I, you know, I mean, most people are probably listening to this have, watch Mad Men, but I hope so. That's my Mad Let's get more people to watch it. Also, (laughs) you know, it's a really good lesson about toxic masculinity. Correct. Um, The, the story arc actually with the woman, I think her name is Rachel, who like runs the Menken's department store. Actually on my second viewing, like made me tear up. It's Mm. very moving. You Mm -hmm. can like really feel. Mm -hmm. It's very emotionally charged. Anyway. She's a great actress. She was also on Sons of Anarchy, which is very different vibe. (laughs) Very different vibe. I think about that show a lot, actually. I have, like, recurring dreams about it. Really? Why? Because his butt was so cute? I mean, real talk. Yeah. I mean, mean, sexy sexy main character and Katie Sagal's in it. Yes, she's amazing in it. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough Uh, show, though. If you're you're a delicate person, I would just – warning on that. It's – I mean, it was very violent and very intense, but it was really good. Yeah, I would. I couldn't rewatch it too, yeah. too, too hard. And I think that's why I have weird dreams about it because it was so emotionally intense to yes, watch. It was it, for sure. Um, so, are you working on any cool stuff that you'd like to plug? I right now? am. Um, well, I just launched some hats that went off very well. So I'm basically taking um vintage, really cool um, vintage florals and different like vintage fabrics, and I'm making uh, 
baseball style hats, classic hats. Um, so I'm going to have a whole other, um, I'm working with someone, a new person for production on that. So I'm hoping that all goes well and we will have another batch coming out hopefully in the next month or two. Uh, and I'm also launching, um, a collaboration I did with gentle thrills, which I don't know. Some of you guys may know Ooh, her. Isa, okay, she's out cool. in LA. She's, um, she's a really amazing artist. She does a lot of airbrushing work as well. So we did these crazy, like psychedelic mushroom robes sort of vibe they're totally bonkers and like insane looking but awesome so she spray painted all the panels and then um sent them back to me and i've like constructing them and making these like insane robes so those will be coming out in the next like week or so i'd have to photograph them and like finish that up but yeah there's a lot of exciting things happening oh and you people can buy your collars on new works. Yeah, that was, a, well, speaking of actually, it was interesting little time with that because, you know, we're talking about like small brands working with bigger companies and feeling new works is an amazing company. And I was really lucky to have hooked up with them because they are kind of on the large end of small, I think uh, I would kind of categorize them as that. And so they had, you know, checked in with me and like loved my collars. And so we sold some of my collars just with the fabrics that I made with, on their website. And then I actually was talking to them about doing like a little bit of like a sustainable collection where they would send me all their scraps of their amazing prints that they make with like a lot of different artists. Um, and they did that. And those came out awesome. People were really excited about that. So it's all their prints, the scraps that they don't use when they're making um, their garments. They sent me like a box of that and I made a bunch of collars. So you could do like really fun collars, like matchy matchy layered on like their dresses or their shirts and like have a matching collar with it. So that's been really fun. And they're an amazing company and an example of someone who's doing it right. Who's, you know, like supporting artists. They, every season they work with a a few different artists and make prints with them uh, and pay them for that. And then they produce um, these prints in like their collection of silhouettes that are really like um, size inclusive and really great to like, just like, you know, very wearable and like easy to wear kind of clothes. Um, So they're just, they're a great group of people. I really like them and I'm really excited to kind of be part of that world with them a little bit. So that was been I'm excited for it. I think that's so cool. I love new works and I feel like they like have been lifting up artists and giving them a platform for so long. So I hope they can expand that. And I feel really excited to know someone personally Who's part of that? Yeah. <laughs> you it's know? been great. And like every time, I mean, they have such a loyal following and anytime they, you know, post about the stuff we're doing together, I get like a ton of new followers and people who are excited, who've also come to me and ordered like custom stuff. So it's been great. And that's an example of like, you know, a, a little bit bigger company, you know, doing things w- right and trying to like, you know, not be, don't be an Jerks. asshole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I yeah. love that. Well, thank you as always. This was such a delight, Jenny. Yes. And I'm already planning that we're going to do an episode about malls. Oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. really I mean, excited. Yes. <laughs> definitely can do some mall stuff. Oh, definitely. That's going to be like a six hour episode. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, it'll just be its own series. Like, for- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Thanks again to Jenny for dropping by for a very fun conversation. Even just recording this cheered me up so much. I have a feeling that she will be back very soon for some mall talk, and I can't wait for that. Literally this morning, I was looking at vintage pictures of malls and just getting so excited. <laughs> In the meantime, you can find Jenny on Instagram at Late to the Party People, and I'll share a link to her Instagram profile and her website in the show notes. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Clothes Horse, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, and please tell a friend. If you would like to support my work here on Clothes Horse, please consider becoming a patron. You can learn more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. You can also make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.